This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's the day of the week many of you look forward to an action-packed show coming your way. Steve Gutenberg, next hour, a discussion about the hazards of consumer DNA testing in our third hour. And the lovely and talented and always outspoken Marlena Schiavo in our final hour. We got denunciations. We got the $1,000 minute. We've got 15 seconds of fame. But first, we begin this show as we begin our last show of the week in our first hour every week. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. That's right. Whatever you have questions about, now's the time to ask. 800-848-9222. We are going to give away a prize uh, to whomever comes up with the most interesting, most creative, most thought-provoking most out-of-the-box question, as determined by Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and Alex Barnard. I just want to reiterate that uh, the idea of this segment, or this, this hour, I should say, is to ask questions about things that you're genuinely curious about. Not to go on a lengthy rant and to give your own commentary and then try and make it into a question. No, it should be something you're genuinely curious about. And that maybe people will be talking about in their own um, family gatherings over the weekend, right? Is nothing more exciting than uh, David, for instance, last week asked, uh, what was the best, in your view, the best sequel that you've ever experienced? And uh, then that's a question that a lot of people told me they were having around dinner tables, around bar rooms, and around uh, family rooms all weekend last week. That's the idea, something that's different. Questions should begins with begin with words like, what? Where, do, how, why? Those are questions. Uh, questions are not lengthy diatribes about a political issue. That being said, let's see how we do. Let me begin with Tommy in Brooklyn. Hello there. Hello there, Tommy. Uh, what is your question? Hey, Frank, how are you? Good morning. Um, after you said that you would be honored to participate with William Shatner on stage, uh, as a guest, did you feel he was being honest or uh, disingenuous? I don't know. Uh, the other part is, I think I, I think he was being. Um, I I think he came across to me as pretty sincere. I mean, there was no need to. I told him I was going to the event anyway, so there was no need to uh, make that offer unless he felt that way in the moment. Now he's doing these shows in Texas. Uh, he did one yesterday, and I think he's doing one today. So maybe he'll find that without my presence, it's going well, and and we'll decide that when he gets to New Jersey, he won't want me. And that's fine. I'm flattered uh, that he won, did the interview, and just was uh, was so complimentary to me to begin with. So whatever happens, happens. I, I think that you would uh, your knowledge would make a, a worthy asset to this show. And I hope that they uh, give you the opportunity. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks a lot, Tommy. 800-848-9222. Pete is in Piscataway. Hello, Pete. 
Hi, Frank. Uh, you like board gaming. Have you ever played historical miniatures? No. Uh, ever played mi- yeah, historical miniatures. You know, they're like little painted figures that you play with rules. No, uh, I, I can, I, I've no. never, I, I've never, uh, I've never played that. I've seen it. I think in the series uh, House of Cards, the president's character, he he plays with those. Uh, but no, I've never, I've never played it. It looks like fun, but I've never played it. There's a convention coming up in March, ten to twelve, at Valley Forge Casino. They're gonna have a big convention there, just for that. So you should look into it. To uh, you know, if you get a, you know, if you don't like, it, you go downstairs and play in the casino. You know, so yeah, I like that actually. Um, uh, you know, if you have some information on that, Pete, if you could email that to me, that sounds pretty fun actually. Or you can look up Little Wars. Just look up HMGS, and you can go from there, and you can find out about HM. GS. Thank you, uh, Pete. I will do that, actually. 800-848-9222. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. Good Hi. evening. I'd like to ask, uh, what would you play if you were going to play roulette? Would you uh, pick numbers or the two two to one? Do you have any hot tips for a well, beginner roulette I'll be honest. Person? I try not to play roulette. Now, I always say that. But then I always see trends developing on the roulette table, and I do always end up uh, making a quick bet on the roulette table. When I was in Atlantic City last, I think I won a couple hundred dollars at the roulette table. I play um, generally pretty conservative at the roulette table. The uh, the roulette methodology that I like the most was taught to me by uh, Floyd Vivino, Uncle Floyd. And uh, I use this with some success in Vegas, and it takes a long time. It's slow, but you win. And what what he convinced me is, you know, they have this bet at most roulette tables where you can bet on the first 12 numbers, the second 12 numbers, or the third 12 numbers. And those bets pay not one-to-one, but two-to-one. So if you place a bet on uh, two of those numbers, say the first 12 and the second 12, Chances are pretty good that you're going to you're going to win on one of them. You got a, essentially almost a two out of three chance of winning. And even though, let's say you put a hundred dollars on the first twelve and a hundred dollars on the second twelve, if the second twelve hits, you've now got three hundred dollars, even though you've lost a, a, you know a hundred. So you've got two hundred. So that's a good way to kind of win slowly and for the for the long haul is to play the first twelve, the second twelve, and the third twelve. Play two out of three of those options with every spin. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. The next one was, have you ever tried to interview Al Pacino? You know, I haven't, actually. And uh, that's not a bad suggestion. I'll, I'll look into that. What I would suggest, Paul, is... Some years back, they had a movie called Righteous Kill. I think it was filmed in Connecticut. I saw that. I saw and that we picture. Went, I, we I went actually... Down to the, I went to their site. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed that as well. Um, I, I I I enjoyed that picture a great deal. And uh, but Paul, just on the roulette front, if you're if you like roulette, I would say give baccarat a uh, a try because baccarat is a game that people don't realize how simple it is and how easy it is, and it actually has much better odds than than roulette does. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight. 9222. We are taking your questions on any subject. You want to talk about movies, gambling, uh, history, board games. You could see we're already running the gamut, and we are going to give away a prize to whomever comes up with the best question. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello there, Mary Beth. What's on? Uh, I can't punch Mary. Okay, there we go. Hello, Mary Beth. 
Hello, Frank. And my best to you and your family. Thank you. Is baby walking more? Yeah, he's a, a little more each day. Yes, he's doing a fair amount of walking. Oh, baby-proof that house, Frank. Oh, baby-proof. it's baby-proof, believe me. <laughs> Good. Um, I want to talk radio for a moment with a host whom I really admire very much. Thank you for all you do. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Um, Frank, I was interested the other day, um, a lot of people were talking about their favorite radio hosts because it happened to have been Howard Stern's birthday and, uh, you know, also Rush's birthday. And I thought, well, where are the female hosts? ABC does a great job having women as on-air talent. I admire these women. But what do you think the future holds for women? And do you have a favorite or one or two favorite female radio hosts? Well, my favorite female radio host of all time is um, Lynn Samuels, who unfortunately is no longer with us. She was terrific. Uh, she was my absolute favorite, and um, she's one of my favorites, period. Has nothing to do with gender. I found her just so entertaining and informative. I could listen to her as difficult as her voice could be at times. I could listen to her all day. Uh, going back a few years, I really enjoyed uh, Sally Jesse Raphael. I thought Sally Jesse Raphael was terrific. Uh, currently, uh, I and I wish she was still on every day, I really enjoyed uh, jo- Joan Hamburg. I enjoy slash enjoyed uh, Joan Hamburg's show very much. Uh, somebody whose show I also really liked back in the day was um, Joan Rivers. Uh, when she had her show on WOR, I thought she was uh, terrific. On WABC, I really, uh, back when she was paired with Curtis, I thought Lisa Sliwa, now Lisa Evers, I thought she was absolutely, uh, absolutely terrific. There are a number of very good female hosts around the country today. Mel Robbins comes to mind. Uh, She's she's very, very good. I really uh, get a kick out of her. Someone that I always thought uh, had a a good a great future in talk radio. I haven't heard from her in a couple of years. I'm not sure what she's up to now, but is uh, Jody Applegate, who's filled in on a bunch of different uh, stations over the years. I think she does a, a great job. But I think there's um, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, for female hosts around the country. One of the most listened to hosts uh, in the country currently is uh, Dana Loesch. Uh, she's syndicated and she was able to pick up a lot of uh, Rush Limbaugh's audience. I think she does a uh, a great job. And while she's never really been my thing, uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger has an incredible uh, following uh, nationally and has for a long time. And somebody who I think is very good. In fact, we probably uh, should have her on the on the on the show sometime soon. Is Mary Lou Henner? Mary Lou Henner, who most people know from Taxi and a bunch of the movies that she's done. I think she's very good as a radio talk show host. So I think there are a lot of good female hosts out there. I, I am hesitant to name a, a, any others because I'm going to leave out several others. But uh, I think there's a lot of good female hosts out there. Well, you've informed me. I didn't know there were that many. I have to look for these people and start listening, as long as they don't interfere with my favorites on this station. That's but. right. That's right. That's right. Uh, make sure, you know. And, you know, I don't think um, I don't think our station is averse to having more female hosts on. You know, um, one of the most popular podcasts on the Red Apple Podcast Network we went over the podcast numbers just yesterday, is actually uh, Laura Curran. She does a very successful podcast. I could see her being very successful uh, on the radio as well. Thank you, Mary Beth. 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 
Bob is in Bayside. Hello, Bob. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Hello? Hey, Bob, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, how do you think the balance in the House could be effective if George, excuse me, if George Santos steps down or is removed? Well, I think, uh, look, I, I think it's very unlikely that he's going to get removed. Unless there's a felony conviction, I don't see the Republicans voting to remove him. I think if there's a special election uh, in the current climate, the Republicans, especially if they run the right candidate, I think they have an excellent chance at winning that special election. Now, that still leaves an opportunity of, say, 60, maybe 90 days where there there would be one less Republican in the House. So I don't know that the, the majority is so narrow at this point that I don't even know that McCarthy wants to lose a Republican even for a couple of months. But uh, I think... Unless the Democrat is someone like Tom Suozzi, who I think would win uh, the special election, I think the Republicans are very well positioned in a special election. In fact, remember, this is a district that Biden won, um, you know, by a comfortable margin. So I think their chances, the Republicans, are actually better in a special election than they would be if they wait until 2024 uh, when there's probably going to be a lot more Democrats coming out to vote. So I think in the short term... Obviously, it probably is a margin that's too close for comfort for Kevin McCarthy. But I think in the long term, the Republicans, if there's a special election, win that seat. And I think that's one of the reasons. And we'll talk about this a little later. But I think that's one of the reasons. And I think Anthony Weiner alluded to this yesterday. I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing the Nassau County Republicans so eager to have him resign because they like their chances in the special a lot more than they would like it uh, than they would like it as um, you know a, a, if they waited until the regularly scheduled election. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Happy New Year, if I can say that. Sure. Well, like... uh, I feel like you already got that one in uh, at some point in our interactions. No, for the I month. didn't. I no? didn't okay. wish it, Fine. but I, I, I forgot. So anyway, I just want to say the show gets better every day. And uh, it's a credit to your hard work. And my question is, now this would be before you were married, of course, if you were going to have a makeout session, what record would you put on the phonograph, Sinatra or Math? You know, it's funny. I um, I asked Steve Gutenberg that question the last time we spoke on the air, and his answer was uh, was Mathis, and just like his character in the film Diner. And uh, since that, um, since we had that discussion, I have been more Mathis inclined. But prior to that interview. It was always Sinatra, Sinatra through and through. Thank you, Mike. We'll continue with your questions in just a moment. Uh, two open lines, 800-848-9222. This is Ask Frank Anything, questions on any subject, music, movies, Star Trek, gambling, uh, Atlantic City, uh, the mob, you name it, radio. You want to know some inside radio questions? you have uh, questions about anything that I've been up to ever? Now's the time to ask them. Whatever you're genuinely curious about, dial 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you. Too much, baby. Why can't you see? 
Presley singing Suspicious Minds. You know, I had tried to play that yesterday because uh, one of the things that uh, I like to do on people's birthdays uh, that I'm good friends with is give them an opportunity to, um, you know, to pick the bumper music. And we're just a few days removed from Elvis Presley's birthday. And I asked my friend Frank Fontano, whose birthday it was yesterday, give me one song that we can play. And uh, most of the other songs were picked, were uh, slotted by Jimmy Otto, whose birthday it was yesterday as well. But I said, give me one song that we can play. And this was the song that he picked. Now, we didn't get to play it yesterday, unfortunately. And lo and behold, it comes out that uh, yesterday, or just a few hours ago, essentially last night, Lisa Marie Presley dies at the age of 54. I was uh, I was a big fan of Lisa Marie. Well, I'll talk about her a little bit later, um, but there's a lot to get to. Uh, Marlena Schiavo is going to be here. Steve Gutenberg we're going to talk to, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about DNA as well. Also, a new UAP report is out. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much to get into that next hour because um, we had on a terrific guest on this um, issue yesterday, Jensine Andresen, and we were just barely scratching the surface, and just I wanted to have her back anyway, and then this UAP report comes out yesterday. Maybe we'll have her back on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of next week to analyze that, so maybe I'll, I'll save uh, some discussion of that UAP report until then, but uh, we'll see. That's the thing about the show. You don't know what you're going to get. It's four hours of unpredictability. I don't know where we're going to be 40 seconds from now. I'll tell you what we're doing for the rest of this hour, though. We're giving you an opportunity to... Ask me anything. 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 Whatever your questions are, now's the time to ask them. 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello there, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. I've got a uh, two-part question for you, but it's pretty brief. Um, Do you believe that history repeats itself? And if you do... How can a person maintain an optimistic um, attitude about the future, knowing human nature and everything? Well, it's a good question. I've thought a lot about this, and the, the short answer is I don't know. But my friend Rich Hoffman, he, for the last 10 years or so, maybe a little, a little less than that, but about the last 10 years, he is a big believer. At least he was. I'm assuming he still is. We haven't discussed this in a little while. But he's a big believer in the generational theory of Strauss and Howe. I don't know if you've read Strauss and Howe. But um, basically their theory is that all of the history of America and the broader history of Western civilization all repeats in an 80-year cycle. For instance, if you were to pick um, – the three most significant events in American history, what would you say they were? They were The Civil War, uh, World War II, and I guess the Civil Rights Movement. Okay, so most people w- would say, and I think with good reason, the three most significant events in the history of America, of the United States, are the Revolutionary War and our independence from Great Britain, the Civil War, and World War II. Now, all three of those incidents are about 80 years removed from one another. And what Strauss and Howe have said is that essentially the generation that uh, that that deals with that crisis, that uh, deals with winning World War II or deals with, um, you know, uh, winning the Civil War or uh, things of that nature, 
that is the hero generation. And then uh, that that there's a certain mentality that influences how that generation then raises their children. And those children come up in a certain way. And that influences how uh, their children are raised. It's really interesting. And the more I've studied it, the more I've researched it, the more I'm, um, I am I become a believer in it. And I guess uh, if it's true... Um, the best um, the best answer I could come up with to how to be optimistic, although I'll be honest, you strike me as a little bit of a natural pessimist, David. But I, think I the, am. I think the best answer is that we conquer all these crises. You know, the Civil War ends, uh, the wars end, these crises end, and uh, we the world continues. I mean, that's the best way that I can look at a sense of optimism is we face a lot of trying times throughout American history, whether it's 9-11, World War II, the Civil War, whatever, and we come through it. The, the, country, severe, uh, the country survives the, per, the Republican doors. Right. Let me just throw in a little pessimism. Um, using what you just said, I think we're overdue for World War Three because World War Two ended about 80 years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I, we are we are right now. If you go by the people and there's people on the left politically and people on the right and people that are kind of non-political that subscribe to this, um, Steve Bannon is one. Uh, they call this the the fourth turning. Right. And a lot of people that believe that whether it's the Great Recession, whether it's the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns, or whether it's this uh, this war in Ukraine, which could spiral out of control to some sort of a, a broader a world war or even a nuclear armed conflict, a lot of people believe that we are smack dab in the middle of being due for another crisis. Now, who knows? Well, I guess we'll see sooner rather than later. Thank you, David. Thank you. A- appreciate the call, David. A- have a good weekend. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Um, so my question is, and I'm actually uh, serious about this, I want to I wanna get in front of the Supreme Court and... Um, Ask them to rule that it's uh, unconstitutional that you have to jump through hoops to be able to be on a ballot. So it should be like throughout the whole country. If you want to run for president, your name could just go on the ballot. How do I get in front of the Supreme Court? Well, a couple of things. One, um, you can't start at the Supreme Court. So uh, two is you need um, you need standing. And three, I, I used to be that it, you had to have a case that the Supreme Court hasn't already ruled on. But we've seen of late the Supreme Court has no problem undoing its own rulings. So I think you need to pick which constitutional right that you think is being um, abridged by unfair ballot access. And there's a number of one, of uh, of rights that you can pick. And then I think you um, would bring an action in federal court, uh, assuming that you have standing uh, uh, under the... What do you mean by standing? Well, so in order to bring an action and get it heard in a court, again, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is you need to... um, Standing basically means it's relevant to you. For instance, if... um, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a party to the the migrant crisis, right? And if I wanted to go to court to stop the uh, you know the migrants being shipped from Florida to Chicago, 
I couldn't do it because I'm not a Floridian and I'm not a Chicagoan. So I would have no ability to challenge that in court. So you'd need, let's say you were a candidate, for instance. Let's say you ran for office in New Jersey and you were being blocked from the ballot because of an arcane um, law in the state of New Jersey that you believe is unconstitutional. You'd have to be able to identify what provision of the state law is unconstitutional and then bring an action in... um, New Jersey in you know New Jersey federal court. Now, if it's an issue that the Supreme Court has already ruled upon, then the the fe- the lower court would, in all in all likelihood, they would continue to throw you off the ballot. Then you'd need to bring an appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals. The Circuit Court of Appeals, if it's an issue the Supreme Court has already ruled on, uh, would also rule against you. And then you'd need to bring a writ to the Supreme Court and hope that at least three of the justices, or at least four of the justices, want to hear that case and then um, rule on it again. But there are literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of people trying to get their cases heard before the Supreme Court every year. And really, there's a very low percentage of cases that the Supreme Court actually hears. So the first step is identifying what provision of the law is unconstitutional um, and on what basis it's unconstitutional. You also have to look at the New Jersey state constitution because, as we saw in the gerrymandering case in New York, sometimes your best bet in challenging some of this stuff is through the state courts, not necessarily the federal courts. Yeah, but I'd want to make it like, you know, across all countries. So, you you know, anybody that wants to run for president, like... You've said it a million times yourself. You have to jump through so many hoops and you don't even, you know, you need so much money and all this to get on the ballot. Like, it should be just if you're a citizen, you should be able to run. You know, I I completely agree with you, right? Uh, Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has not always shown uh, an ability to agree with you. For instance, I'll give you one example, right? If I lived in uh, upstate New York, right, I could, as a non-attorney, run for judge. I could run for town justice. And I could run in about uh, 26 states around the country for judge. And in about seven states, I could run for judge and be able to actually put people in jail. In New York City, I can't do that. Now, because I live in New York City, other than, and not upstate New York, where they have these town justice courts, I believe that is a violation of the equal protection uh, provision of the 14th Amendment. The courts have essentially given a lot of deference to the states in terms of how judges are selected. So even though I believe it, the courts would say, no, you know, the prior Supreme Court ruling is that the states can pick how they want to uh, how they want to pick their own judges. But uh, but, you know, we can uh, we can definitely hash this out a bit. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and working on this and thinking of different Uh, provisions that can be challenged in various state laws, various municipal laws around the country. And uh, sometimes, to me, it's just so blatant. For instance, New York just passed a very unfair ballot access law, and that was so clearly unconstitutional. And the, the appeals court, I thought for sure, was going to throw this case out, and they didn't. So um, sometimes what's clear to me is not always clear to a, a federal judge. But, uh, but let's talk more, John. You've got my email, and if you do want to pursue that, we can. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. David is in Maryland. Hello, David. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. 
I have this question for you, um, and I just want to go on record by saying I don't have any opinion of this at all. So whatever you think, I'm perfectly fine with. Um, but I, last night I was listening to you interviewing the doctor, and this question popped into my head, and I didn't have a chance to call. So anyway, um, are you familiar with David Icke and his view and opinions on extraterrestrials in ancient history coming to this, to the Earth and intermingling with um, humans and creating a reptilian human race? Yes. And yes, how I... this race now? How yes. this race now is like in control of the world yes. and all that and everything. Yes. What's your opinion? I uh, look. I'm skeptical, right? I, I am a, a, a big believer that there's life on other planets. I think there's an excellent chance that um, that there have been visits to the Earth from um, you know from other planets. Uh, the David Icke lizard people are running the world theory. That's something I have a much um, a much tougher time swallowing. Uh, look, David Icke makes a very nice presentation. But I, I, what he's really lacking in is any sort of evidence. Now, the, the person that we had on yesterday has gr- degrees from Princeton, Columbia, and Harvard, and she's a professor at Harvard. She's a serious scientist, right? David Icke is yeah, someone whose life was changed 30 years ago when he met a, a psychic. And I, I think yeah. that, you know, mm-hmm. he's been able to write 20 books and make a lot of money selling these books. I, I think somebody like Jensine Andresen, who was on yesterday, uh, while I'm sure she'd like to make money, I get the sense that she's more interested in serious uh, scientific pursuits of this stuff. Whereas David Icke, I get the sense is, uh, you know, I don't want to be insulting and he's welcome to come on the show, but I, I get the sense that he's just kind of a grifter, honestly, David, but that's just my opinion. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 Mike is in St. James. Hello, Mike. Hello, Frank. Uh, in the House of Representatives, one of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy made was one person can make a uh, motion to vacate. Right. Yes. Does that apply just to the Demo- uh, Republicans or the Democrats no. can do that also? A- any member of the House can do it. And would they need a majority to remove him? Of course. Yeah. You can't remove the speaker without a majority. I mean, a, a yes. simple majority. Simple majority. Yes. Okay, so if one member doesn't like a bill he's presenting and calls for a motion, I think every Democrat would vote against, uh, vote to remove him. And they just need one or two, uh, five or six Republicans, and he'd be out. I think you have put your finger on exactly why that was such a sticking point for Kevin McCarthy. And as uh, Anthony Weiner pointed out yesterday, maybe it was David Jolly, that is what did in uh, John Boehner, is they had this rule, this motion to vacate, and they were poised to uh, remove him, and Boehner was, on all likelihood, not going to be able to survive a motion to uh, to vacate. But you're exactly right, and that's exactly why McCarthy fought this rule so bitterly. Doesn't this paralyze the speaker, though? Yes, yes, that's the whole, that was the whole debate. Uh, during the whole, uh, you know, 15 ballots. That's why they wouldn't go along with this. Now, five members was kind of bad enough in the uh, eyes of the pro-McCarthy people. But to have just one member do it, yeah, it's a recipe for perpetual chaos. Frank, one more quick one. Did you have a guest on 
relating to the EMP attacks, electromagnetic pulse. I've had several on. Uh, We touched upon that a little bit this week with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. But the most knowledgeable person that I've ever talked to on that subject was Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, who was actually on the Congressional Task Force uh, studying EMPs. He's a knowledgeable guy. He's written at length about it. If you email me, Mike, I'll send you some of our previous interviews on this. Uh, or He's been on a bunch of other shows as well. But Peter Vincent Pry is the guy. We're probably overdue for a conversation with him. By the way, if anyone wants to email me, you could do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. Uh, let me say hello. Let me see who's been holding the longest. There's something equitable about going to folks that have been holding. Our friend Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, the city's paying uh, $500 for a migrant in a hotel room. Uh, do you think it would be a good idea for maybe the city council to, to float a bill <laughs> to give, say, senior citizens uh a chance to maybe rent a room out in the house of somebody, you know, a migrant that's vetted uh, for 500 uh, a day or maybe 400 a day uh, to give them some extra income because of the hard times uh, with the economy? You know, I think that's an interesting idea, uh, in all honesty, Neil. I, I'm sure there's some liability issues there that the city council would have to tackle. But, yeah, I mean, there's nothing that stops someone from renting their house on Airbnb so if you can do that, if you can rent your house on Airbnb or some similar, uh, you know, housel renting app, why shouldn't you be able to do that to for a migrant if the city is going to pay the bill? I don't uh, I don't disagree with you on that one, Neil. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, if I uh, talk with Joe Borelli over the weekend, I will bring that up. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let me see. Uh, Igor is in Fairfield. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Before I ask you my main question, I wanted to ask you about a neat, uh, funny little quote you had on your Facebook page from Peter Valone, where he said, the information we're getting from Frank Morano is the best information out there, and that's the problem. It shouldn't be that way. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the background story. Well, uh, yeah, if I remember correctly, you know, Pete, Pete, that's from Peter Valone Jr., who was a city councilman and um, uh, should be the borough president or the D.A. in Queens. I wish he would run this year for D.A., but uh, now he's a judge out there in Queens, uh, really a dedicated public servant, a wonderful guy. And um, he was uh, in 2010, I believe it was. The there was this horrible winter storm that had paralyzed the city and the mayor, Mayor Mike Bloomberg at the time, was nowhere to be found. It looked like he was in Bermuda. The city and the state, the MTA, was providing no information to the public about what was running. I spent hours, literally hours, in the freezing cold in the snow waiting for the bus to try to get to work only to find out on my own later on with no information from the MTA whatsoever that buses weren't running. So uh, I was on another radio station with Curtis at the time. And, um, you know, the next day, you know, I had a whole rundown prepared of uh, what services were running and what was available to New Yorkers and when certain things were going to be back online. And it's difficult to imagine now because now there's apps where you can see when your street's being plowed. You could uh, get all this information at your fingertips now. It was not the case even 12 years ago. And so uh, Pete Vallone Jr. was very critical of the city's response, rightly so, and he was on the radio right after that. And uh, Curtis, in interviewing Pete Vallone, had uh, had said something like, oh, well, Frank Morano says this is open and that's open. And Pete had that quote 
where uh, he said that, uh, you know, th- that's the problem is the, mo- the, the, the most information we're getting right now as New Yorkers is from Frank Morano. So I posted that at the time. I used to do a, a daily quote of the day feature on Facebook, and I guess it came up in Pete's uh, memories last week. So he texted it to me. So for Throwback Thursday, I figured I'd share it on Facebook. It was kind of amusing. That's a great story. Um, now, Frank, I, I know that he's obviously a friend and a colleague, but I was wondering if you had uh, watched or, or planned to watch the uh, CNN miniseries about Rudy Giuliani, basically called The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. I, uh, I've seen the advertisements, and I saw a little bit of it last week when the sound was off. I saw Dominic Carter was in there. I'll be honest. Uh, I initially was planning not to watch it at all because I I could tell by how it was marketed that it was just going to be a total hit piece. But in seeing some of the people that are interviewed, and I'm sure it is a hit piece, and I know some of the producers involved, and um, I I know a little bit of the behind the scenes of how it was produced and who they reached out to and who they chose to use. And I'm sure it's going to be just a horrible slam piece, but... I am so interested in all things Giuliani that uh, I probably will end up watching it, at least the first episode, even though I have an idea of the editorial bent of, uh, of where it's going. I, asked, I actually asked the mayor last week if he wanted to come on with me to kind of review it, and uh, he never got back to me. I, I think he was busy answering subpoenas in, in Georgia and stuff like that, so I didn't, I didn't follow up. But maybe we'll try and get him on next week to talk about it. Very good. Thank you, Frank. Have thank, a good evening. Thank you, Igor. Have a good weekend. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Steve is in Harlem. Hello, Steve. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Um, I have a, I have two questions, but I'm going to just ask the one that I told the guy that I spoke to. Um, I wanted to know about Walmart. And in the five boroughs, there are no Walmarts. Allowed. You have to go to upstate, New Jersey, or Long Island. Now, um, a lot of times people say, well, you know, they hurt the mom and pop store, but I don't think that's the reason anymore, especially with Amazon and everything else. I wanted to know, one question was, why are there no Walmarts? in the five boroughs? Well, it's, uh, there are a bunch of reasons, but um, primarily it has to do with the concerted effort that organized labor has made in fighting Walmart and preventing them from getting to New York City. Now, Walmart and other similar superstores, as you know if you've been there, they're mammoth. They cover thousands of square meters, and it is difficult uh, to find plots of land that large in New York City. The the city, especially in places like Manhattan, has a very well-defined grid structure, which can't necessarily accommodate these large stores. But um, they re- usually will require a zoning variance. And the politicians in New York, which are very beholden to a lot of the labor unions, they haven't shown much of an much of a desire to give a zoning variance to uh, to Walmart, but uh, I don't think that's changing anytime soon. The, um, so, the go ahead. No, I was going to say. So we have Target, which is another Walmart, maybe nicer to shop, but still, it's a big conglomerate. Home Depot, Lowe's, these things shut down. You know, they're pretty much all the same. It's just like Uber and Lyft. Um, Walmart, you know, you have your choice. You might rather go to Walmart because, you know, the prices might be a little bit better. Um, but Target seems to be a little bit more civilized wherever I go. But they're both pretty much huge stores. And 
the closest one in Valley Stream, they're pretty much across the street from each other. Yeah, the the other thing that you're seeing now, and maybe this is one of the reasons that uh, Walmart has, I don't want to say they've given up, but for a while it seemed like every month there was different effort by Walmart to get a store in New York. But one of the things that you see now is a lot of New Yorkers ordering online from Walmart and having it delivered to their home. So they're getting to enjoy a lot of those Walmart quality prices and the Walmart selection uh, with it just uh, delivered to them. But I, I think the real the reason is size, real estate, and the power of organized labor from uh, from my reading of the situation. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Roger is in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi. Uh, a lot of great questions tonight. Mine's going to sound pretty darn silly, but anyway. We love that. We um, like silly. I'd, uh, uh, you know, object, uh, 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 an honest, objective opinion of the planet Earth, uh, putting yourself in the shoes of, uh, let's say, you and your family are extraterrestrials from some other planet, and you're vacationing, or you go on your way to Saturn for a vacation, and you swing by, let's check Earth out. And after flying around and looking at everything, is this the kind of place you would actually want to land and and, and your family uh, step out and walk around? Well, it's a great question, Roger, and that's similar to the um, the plot of the picture, uh, Earth Girls Are Easy, although if memory serves, I think they landed here by accident. Also kind of similar to Starman. Look, I think this is a great planet. I think this is a great country. I think this is a great city. And one of the things, look, I, I spend a lot of time on the radio complaining about everything from uh, how people take their shoes off or not take their shoes off to pens to people leaving things around. But most of the complaining that I do is just kind of fun, uh, honestly. I mean, I, there are a lot of serious issues that we tackle, but, uh, you know, it's mostly just an excuse to have some fun. I think um, we get so in the habit of complaining about what we don't have that – it's very easy to forget about how many things are going right in this world, in this country, and in this city. You want to compare the status of where we are as a country now at, no, to 150 years ago? Do you want to compare where we are as a planet now versus 400 years ago? How about 1,000 years ago? There's a reason that the population has reached whatever we're at, 8 or 9 billion and that's because uh, a few hundred years ago, there were a whole lot more wars going on, a whole lot more people killing one another. If you look at the history of human civilization, now all this goes out the window if uh, we all blow one another up with a nuclear war as a result of this Russia-Ukraine situation. But in the history of human civilization right now, this is one of the most peaceful times in the history of human civilization. And look, there's a lot of things to complain about all over the world, including in our backyard. But I think most of the people that you come across, they're pretty good people. They're pretty nice people. And uh, I think that uh, it's a pretty good planet. So I, uh, I, look, I don't know what my other options are as a human. I don't know what's going on as uh, on Alpha Centauri or on Mars or what the uh, vacationing options are there. But I like this planet. I, I I would stay if I were uh, a visitor from another planet. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Thomas is in Maryland. Hello, Thomas. Hi. How are you, Frank? Good. I'm well. Thanks. Yeah, I was watching a movie uh, a couple of weeks ago with William Shatner. Uh, it was on uh, Me TV out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spinning Gooley, you ever heard of that guy? Yeah, he's been a guest on this show. 
Yeah. Uh, he played in a movie with uh, Ernest Borgnine, and I can't remember the name of the movie. Do you know what it was? Uh, the film is The Devil's Reign. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Uh, it's a okay. horror movie. It's very good. It's it's not very good, actually. It's kind of campy. It's a little cheesy. But it's um, it's it's. I like it because I'm a fan of both of them. But uh, if I was making a list of Shatner's 20 best films, even non-Star Trek-related films, uh, that probably would not be in it. But it's was it's it, fun. Was that to watch. before Star Trek or after? No, it was after Star Trek the TV series, but it was before the Star Trek movies. It was in the uh, mid to late seventies, and Star Trek ended in nineteen sixty nine. Then they did the animated Star Trek series in nineteen seventy two, and that film came out. I, I I don't know. I want to say seventy. Let me look it up. Actually, uh, nineteen seventy five, and then uh, they did the Star Trek the motion picture movie in nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, it was a pretty good movie. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Good. You know, it's a little campy. You know, it's um, it's very dark, uh, which uh, is unlike a lot of Shatner's later work. If people don't know the the film, it deals with a Satanist cult leader who's burnt alive by the local church, and he vows to come back. Uh, it's it's a, it's a little it's a little dark. It's a little scary, uh, but it's also kind of campy. But I'm glad you saw it because there are two great actors there. Thank you, Thomas. We'll continue with your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. We're doing an Ask Frank Anything on this, the Friday edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. My dear Frank Morello. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Michael Jackson, You Are Not Alone. Um, a very a great song, a very interesting song. And uh, I didn't realize until yesterday, quite frankly, that uh, the this was the first song to ever, the first Michael Jackson song, excuse me, to ever debut at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Now, uh, Michael appeared with Lisa Marie Presley in the video at the time and in they were in, in scenes that were inspired by a painting a Mitchell Parrish painting so as we're mourning the loss of uh, Lisa Marie Presley this strikes me as uh, as as appropriate a song to play as as any other I mean, if you haven't seen that video it's a beautifully done video um, and I just linked to it on my Facebook page facebook.com slash Morano fan Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley both Gone, both gone far too young. 800-848-9222. We're doing a... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. So we only have a few minutes left. I've been been going on too long with my responses, so I'm going to try and be short in my answers. I would just ask that uh, for the eight of you that we're going to try and get to here... Try and be short in your questions as well. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. 
Do you have a cat? If so, tell us about it. If not, why not? uh, No, I don't have a cat. I have three cats uh, that uh, my wife had before she met me, and I have inherited them. Uh, They're my stepcats. Not inherited because my wife, thankfully, is still alive. Uh, There's one black cat. She's delightful. She loves people. Her name is Bathsheba. There's one gray cat. He hates all people uh, but loves Rachel and me. His name is Melchizedek. And there's one uh, black and white cat who is skittish. She doesn't allow any people to get near her except occasionally my wife. Her name is Prissy. Alyssa is in Manhattan. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, Frank. How are you? Great. Thank you. Okay. My question is Star Trek. Uh, across all of the um, the uh, Star Trek shows, Voyager, Gen- Next Gen, um, if you could pick out of anyone uh, to be a character, okay, who would you pick and why? But there's a stipulation. The character must be female, and it can't be Captain Janeway. Okay. Uh, it's got to be a fem- I've got to be a female character. Correct. I, I liked, um, you know, I like, uh, let's see, I like Belana Torres. She had some, oh, no, I'll be Jadzia Dax. Jadzia Dax. Uh, yeah, that's funny. I would choose Dax as well. Yeah, no, that's that's my girl, and she knows what it's like to have been a man. So I feel like I can I can slip into that role fairly fairly easily. Think, good call, Alyssa. Have a good weekend. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Robert in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Hello. The uh, question I have to ask you is: What does the future portend for the Congress? In the next two years. Well, look, we spent an hour analyzing that very same question yesterday, and I could see it going in one of two directions. I could see there being all sort of bipartisan alliances, both left-wing and right-wing and centrist, that, uh, that take shape and do some really good things. Or I could see it just being paralyzed and nothing get done and the country being brought to the brink of a debt default because of this perpetual stalemate. I have no idea. I'll tell you, obviously, I think you can tell which one I'm hoping for. 800-848-9222. Tom is in New Jersey. Hello, Tom. Hey, how you doing? Listen, two things. Uh, uh, number one, do you remember Allison Steele, the night bird? Sure. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. She was great, and 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 I had a, a, a great experience with Lynn Samuels. Uh, they, they used to have a thing on ABC that they called the Battle of the Talk Show hosts, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they had it out at a museum, I think, out in Queens. Yeah, and I, and I, I wish I, they'd bring something saying, like that back. That was that was a lot of fun. It was, it was it was great, and we sat outside because my wife smoked. So uh, Kubi and Lynn was out there, and Lynn told us stories. Her apartment must have been one of the most amazing places on the planet, full of so much weird stuff because she was just and she was just she was the i i agreed with nothing she said but uh, but she was just uh, she was a sweetheart and uh, hey, Tom, and we only have we, about 40 we, seconds left did you have a quick question though or was that it just about allison Steele? just 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 that she was about allison Steele, yeah. and 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 i and I, I hope you make it to uh to englewood with uh with shatner thank and you on stage. Uh, hopefully i'll see you there tom thank you all right um those of you that are that are on, if you want to, uh, if you want to be, if you want to be grandfathered in, we'll try and get to a few of you next hour. No promises, though, because we got Steve Gutenberg coming up. We got Marlena Shivo coming up. We have uh, Lori Colby on DNA coming up. It's an action-packed show. Winner, best question, Matt Blaze. John and Freehold about the Supreme Court. John and Freehold about how do you get to the Supreme Court? Same way you get to Carnegie Hall. 
practice, especially if you're a lawyer. John Freehold, call back, and uh, we'll give you a prize of some sort. 800-848-9222. Coming up in a moment, we'll either talk UFOs or Lisa Marie or both. Steve Gutenberg still to come. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. One thing I have very little tolerance for is baseless accusations without evidence. But when it comes from someone who, and I don't like to call names, when it comes to someone, uh, comes from someone who is a total and complete buffoon, I have zero tolerance for it. Now, I don't have much interest spending a lot of time on this Biden document issue. Because so many people smarter than me have covered it. You've heard all sorts of coverage from people like uh, Alan Dershowitz, uh, Andrew McCarthy, uh, Jonathan Turley, Andrew Napolitano. There's all sorts of uh, legal analysts and scholars that have covered this. And I'm not sure what I can really add to the conversation. As I said in the discussion with uh, Anthony Weiner and David Jolly yesterday. Oh, by the way, we did finally get a call from um, Tom Tancredo yesterday. He had over. He had fell, fallen asleep and missed his appearance. And you know what else happened yesterday? I got uh, all these Republican congressmen that I was reaching out to all day yesterday, or in the three hours from the time Bob Dornan canceled and I booked Tom Tancredo. I got um, offers from a dozen Republican congressmen to come on whenever we want next week. So maybe we'll bring back this congressional panel next week, and uh, we'll make sure that we have a solid conservative in place for your liking. But. Um, my quick take on the whole Biden document case is I doubt that there's anything uh, that will come of a criminal indictment or something like that. I think Merrick Garland has done the right thing in terms of appointing a special counsel. I think politically and legally, it's very good for Donald Trump because uh, I think it makes it very difficult to charge him with a documents case uh, uh, for the Mar-a-Lago thing. I realize there are different cases, but that's my whole take on it, right? That being said, Congressman Hank Johnson, do you know who he is? He has got to be, and this is a tough thing, he has got to be the least intelligent member of the United States Congress, both houses. He is a uh, Democrat from Georgia, and he is just, uh, putting it charitably, a total idiot. I I mean, I I don't want to call anyone a name, but he is. So, for instance, this was his take on the Joe Biden document situation. Now, there's a lot of takes to have on the Biden document situation and a lot of pro-Biden takes. If you're a pro-Biden guy, you could say, look, his lawyers, they didn't wait for um, the uh, National Archives to come banging down Biden's door. They handed this right over. You could say Biden's team went and searched and made sure they had all these classified documents. They, they did a whole search of all the places they might be and turned them over. That's a pro-Biden spin. You could say, look, they found 15 Biden classified documents and 300 Trump's classified documents. There's all sorts of spin that you can have. 
What you're about to hear from Hank Johnson yesterday is not one of those spins. This is just total out-and-out buffoonery. This is Congressman Hank Johnson. My response to it all is that alleged classified documents showing up allegedly in the possession of... uh, of uh, Joseph Biden, uh, you know, I mean, there's so much that needs to be um, investigated, and um, and that's that's what I call for is for everything to be investigated. But I'm suspicious of the timing of it. I'm I'm also aware of the fact that things can be planted on people, P- places and things can be planted, um, or things things can what? be planted in places. Uh, and then discovered conveniently that may be what has occurred here. I'm not ruling that out. What? He's not ruling that out. Who would have have planted this? Who has access to Biden's Corvette and classified documents and would be in a position to plant documents? This has got to be. And again, you could love Biden and hate Trump. That has got to be the stupidest thing that I've heard in the last 12 years. Uh, Easily. Easily in the last 12 years. This whole idea that they planted classified documents that Biden just happened to take when he was vice president, and they just planted them now. Where have they been hiding for 10 years? He's not ruling it out. Well, thank goodness. Now, you ask... Why is this the stupidest thing I've heard in the last 12 years? Well, because that's the last time I heard Hank Johnson say something. This is a uh, island that at its widest This is from 2011. Hank Johnson talking about from Guam shore to shore and at its smallest level uh, or smallest uh, uh, location it's uh, 7 miles uh, between one shore and the other. Is that correct? I don't have the exact uh, dimensions, but uh, to your point, sir, I think Guam is a small island. Very small island and about 24 miles, if I recall, long. So 24 miles long, about 7 miles wide at the least widest place on the island and about 20, about 12 miles wide uh, uh, on the widest part of the island. And um, I don't know how many square miles that that is. Do you happen to know? I don't have that uh, figure with me, sir. I can certainly supply it to you if you'd like. Yeah, my my fear is that... uh, the whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't anticipate that. The, uh, <laughs> the Guam population, I think, currently about 175,000. And again, with 8,000 Marines and their families, it's an addition of about 25,000 uh, more uh, into the population. Now, he's questioning there um, the commander of the general of the of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, right? General Robert Willard. Can you imagine being General Robert Willard, a decorated flag officer in the United States military, dedicated your whole life to public service, and you're being forced to be questioned 
by someone who clearly does not have a triple-digit IQ. Did you hear the effort that he went to in that 90 seconds in terms of trying to explain his theory as to why Guam um, will capsize and tip over? So Hank Johnson (laughs) is – he's something. I got to tell you, if you are a resident of uh, Georgia's 4th District – you got to be proud of yourself today, planting documents. And so far, you got to hand it to the people of Guam. The island has not yet tipped over. Uh, by the way, if uh, my wife is listening to this program, please cross off Clark Atlanta University and Texas Southern University Law School as schools that our son is ever allowed to apply to because those are both schools that uh, Congressman Hank Johnson has graduated from. Hi, honey. And uh, no one should ever go to either of those schools because if you can come out of a college and a law school and think, one, that there's a possibility that Guam might tip over and capsize or that uh, that they have planted documents in Joe Biden's house next to his Corvette and in his office, that is not a good school. All right. There's a lot of stuff I want to get to. Uh, Lisa Marie Presley has passed away. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, this UAP report is out. I may save that for our discussion with Dr. Andresen next week. A lot of other stuff. Good denunciations coming up. But first, we're going to talk with Steve Gutenberg straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, we're going to uh, connect with Steve Gutenberg in just a minute. Uh, but uh, a lot of people have been uh, patiently holding. Let me talk to uh, as many of these people as we can here uh, before we uh, get to Steve Gutenberg. 800-848-9222. Hey, Brandon is in New Jersey. Brandon, I uh, hate to keep you holding for so long. What was on your mind? Hey, Frank, I wanted to know if you thought there was any correlation between Elvis' birthday and Lisa uh, Marie's death. You know, that's a great question. I, I don't know, right? I'm sure a numerologist or an astrologer would have a uh, a thought or two on that. I really, I really couldn't. I, I think it might just be a coincidence. Who knows? Look, her son, and she's been very open about this, and Brandon, I'm just going to disconnect you because your phone's a little screwy there. Um, her son killed himself. Right. So uh, there are certain families that have a history of depression and there are, um, you know, I, I don't know if there was any drug use involved. Uh, it's just sad all around. Somebody this young, this talented, who had so much to offer the world, who uh, is taken from us this soon. It's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous shame in my judgment. Lisa Marie Presley um, is somebody that clearly. Uh, she, I think her 
on the one on the one hand, she was very blessed. In unlike a lot of people, she never had to worry about money. She always had as much money as she ever wanted. On the other hand, she grew up really not knowing her father and constantly in the shadow of one of the most famous people in history. Could not have been an easy thing. And uh, look, she was married to Michael Jackson, which, and maybe we'll play some clips of the interview that she did with Michael Jackson a little later. That has got to be a difficult person to be in a relationship with for a whole host of reasons. By the way, speaking of celebrities, um, my my sister-in-law, Kat, who's a wonderful person and uh, very kind and generous. I saw her yesterday. My stepmother was honored at this uh, soccer league function. She's been a volunteer and a director and gotten a lot of money for the soccer league for a long time. And they put her in the soccer league hall of fame for her work. And uh, we went to the dinner and I see my sister-in-law Kat and she's telling me how um, a friend of hers, uh, her daughter is having a bat mitzvah. She's 13 years old. She's having a bat mitzvah. And unfortunately, this young lady's father passed away a year or two ago due to cancer. And she wants to do something nice as she's putting together this bat mitzvah for her friend. And she asks me, can I um, help get some celebrities that are popular with 13-year-old girls uh, that would maybe go in person and appear at the bat mitzvah or record a video saying, oh, you know, congratulations, so-and-so. I... um, uh, I and my wife laughed when I told her this because I don't know anybody that's popular with 13-year-olds. So I was telling her, uh, I could probably get you somebody like uh, Congressman Peter King. If she's a uh, Peter King fan, I could get you that person. Or uh, or Curtis, you know, Curtis is a, uh, he's a walking character, right? Yeah, what bat mitzvah person wouldn't like to have Curtis Lee with there? Or maybe even Uncle Floyd, you know? Who knows? Maybe even Steve Gutenberg. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, Mike from Parts Unknown. Hello there, Mike. Hello, Frank. Parts Unknown. I'm in uh, first time in twenty five years, Las Vegas. Doing pretty good at black. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hot, the hot corner, third base, the last seat before the dealer. Um, I was listening, uh, like I always do. You know, um, uh, I was telling Ken. You know, the uh, racket squad. I have to. I have to listen to that. Uh, you're so, uh, you know, uh, concerned, not concerned, but with the mob, Italian. I knew some Westies, whatever. Uh, I mentioned a name I played ball against and whatever. Uh, Frank, in the next life, uh, who would you like to come back as, as far as someone in the, uh, in the Italian businessman uh, uh, sphere? Who would you like to come back as? Well, I'm not sure I really get the question. Are you talking about like a gangster or something? A gangster. Well, whatever. Well, whatever gets your attention the most. I don't know. Uh, I, I um. I, I really couldn't say, Mike. I'm pretty happy as I am. Uh, if there's one thing, and and thank you, Mike. I, I um. If there's one thing I'd like to do, it's be cryonically frozen and be revived many years from now. And I'm actually looking into that. I always thought it was cost prohibitive to do that, but. A bunch of people have written to me and uh, explained that there are some mechanisms involving life insurance that I can use. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I have life insurance for my family and so forth. But you can actually get life insurance to pay for your cryogenic freezing. So that's an interesting option that I hadn't considered. So I'm looking at that. But as far as coming back as someone else, that's not really 
something that I would want to do in all candor. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me, oh, oh, real quick, I just got to mention, mention, you know, one other thing. Uh, A little bit later, Marlena Schiavo is going to be here. And speaking of uh, life after death and so forth, we, a week ago, we had a whole discussion all about DNA, right? Because initially it was reported that this uh, fellow that probably, not probably, that, that killed these Idaho college students, that that person was uh, caught using his parents' DNA. So it's, um, you know, it, that's, uh, that's that. So um, that's that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Steve Gutenberg in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, this is exciting. Not only is uh, the gentleman I'm privileged to be sitting across right now an incredibly successful actor, author, businessman, producer, director. In the last few years that we've been doing this show, he's the only one that can speak on both bagels and Mathis versus Sinatra with equal authority. He's appearing Saturday in the Lifetime original film, How to Murder Your Husband. He's also pretty universally regarded as a super nice guy in a field which is not known for producing a lot of nice guys. And to the best of my knowledge, he's the only person to work with both Colonel Sanders and Lawrence Olivier. It is a great deal of uh, personal pleasure to welcome the one and only Steve Gutenberg. Steve, it's great to see you in person. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Frank. It's really nice to see you. And now, are you aware that your book, The Gutenberg Bible, is only available at one branch of the New York Public Library, only the Mulberry Street branch? I was I was aware of that. You were? Yes, I was. I actually requested the Mulberry branch. <laughs> it's the only branch that actually serves cherry cola. If you want cherry cola, Mulberry branch. <laughs> I just want to tell you that. I just want to... Wait a minute. You're not Cousin Brucey. <laughs> I was told I'm going to see Cousin Brucey. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is, is, this, is this a joke? Are you joking? Is this a joke? Is this a joke? Uh, I, I, if only I were Cousin Brucey. Uh, Trust me, I'd be a lot better dressed. You see, oh, we I have a, a Cousin, Cousin Brucey cardboard uh, cutout here. Uh, Steve, actually, can you get a little closer to the mic? Actually? Yeah, sure. Go, perfect. Yeah. <clears throat> can I bring the mic now, closer to me? No, that's, so I have a copy of your book, The Gutenberg Bible, arriving today, right? Because that, I thought, that means you didn't read it. No, well, no. I, I Here, listen to what I did. I was hoping to, one, um, you know, get a, a, a tremendous uh, souvenir, not only for me and the Morano household, but my one-year-old son something to treasure years from now to leave behind exactly. when you go to the great <laughs> exactly. studio of the sky exactly but uh and not he'll ar- go like this what's this throw it out it, so i bought this book and i was excited to read it it's not arriving till today so i had to go and buy the electronic version of this book for 11 dollars. so not only did i did i purchase it and read it i bought two copies one in paper one in electronic you are, how much do you want? Well, no, I, you, I, I, I get it. I get it. I'm from New York. What do you need? <laughs> I'm going to have to have I'll you give you $11. Sign. 
That's my final offer. A, a blank piece of paper that uh, you can insert, <laughs> that, in, that I can insert into the book when it arrives uh, later today. Uh, tell me about How to Murder Your Husband. You have let, you are leading, you're not, it's not past tense, one of the most incredible acting careers in history. You've wow. made uh, a lot of films that have made over $100 million, Three Men and a Baby, Short Circuit, The Police Academy franchise, the remake of The Poseidon Adventure, which I really enjoyed. Um, I was sorry to see what happened to the masseuse in that uh, in that picture it but happens. uh tell me this uh this picture on the lifetime net, net lifetime network saturday how to murder your husband uh what's it all about sybil shepherd is in this with you right have you been drinking <laughs> i might just want to know right now you you, you don't, off the air tell me if you've been drinking anyway you don't have to tell me on the air because people are watching um this is the only well, time i'm sober these four I, hours that's what i heard yes, and i'm really glad true. to be here you i i got a call from my agent uh do you want to work with sybil shepherd and i said yeah you know, I'm a big fan of hers from the Heartbreak Kid, Taxi Driver, Last Picture Show, and of course Moonlighting. So and Sybil, they, she was great on Sybil. And too. Sybil, great show, yeah. Uh, so I read the script, and it's a fascinating story, and it's going to be on Lifetime, which I think does great movies—not only Christmas movies, but great movies about women. And women love murder. Don't get don't when you go home. Be nice to your wife because women love murder. So it's actually about a true story about Daniel and Nancy Brophy who were broke, living up in Portland, real problems. So Nancy decides to take an insurance policy out on her husband, buy a gun online, and write a blog called How to Murder Your Husband. A month later, she kills Daniel and uh, looks pretty bad. So she allegedly killed him, but she was convicted. And she got convicted, I guess, June or July of 2022. Oh, so once you're convicted, it's no longer alleged. Well, she's appealing. So you have to say alleged. Got it. So so. you're you're playing Daniel. I'm playing Daniel. I get killed, paid 75 out of 95, (laughs) which basically means I had one day off a week. So I get to relax. The other days, you're up at 4 o'clock in the morning. So it's going to be this Saturday on the Lifetime uh, Network, 8 o'clock Eastern. And you can watch it on mylifetime.com. If you don't get to watch it on a Saturday night, let's say the baby's crying. Let's say your husband wants to have sex, you know, once a year. Or people uh, are listening to Cousin Bruce. Or people are listening to Cousin Bruce. You're not Cousin Brucey? Seriously? <laughs> if only. I was told, I was seriously told that I was to see Cousin <laughs> Brucey. So it's not a disappointment because I like you, but I'm just saying. Um, anyway, uh, you can watch. The great thing about this streaming situation is that. If you don't see it Saturday night, you can watch it another time. Whereas years ago, you couldn't do that. Right. You miss it. You miss it. It's you miss gone. it. It's gone. You're never going to see it again. What do you you're think? Not, if you didn't see the last episode of MASH, you're not going to see it. Right. It's over. Right. Uh, now, um, what do you think is driving the surge of interest in the true crime genre? And we've now seen it in publishing. We've seen it in podcasting, uh, television movies, and theatrical releases. The one thing that seems a sure bet in terms of ratings and in terms of making money, in terms of getting clicks or page turns, whatever, is true crime. What does it say about American culture that we're obsessed with real-life crimes? Human being or bloodthirsty animals. <laughs> it's the way it is, Frank. And that's just, we love blood and gore and killing and murder. You know, some of the most well-liked people in the world are criminals. Uh, You know, uh, Al Capone was well-liked in Chicago. Uh, And you can go on and on and on. People love murder. They love violence. And it's fun to watch. 
basically because it's not happening in your own house. I think if you have someone murdering people in your own house, you're you probably going like to watch that. it in television. That's true. But most houses don't have that. Hey, what was it like to work with Sybil Shepherd, both uh, as an actress, I think we're, a lot of fans are familiar with her, but we haven't gotten to know her on a personal basis and work with her as you have. What's she like? She is really kind of astounding. She walks in. First time I met her, we, we were doing makeup and hair tests. Uh, and they did great. They they had fantastic ability to make us both look like the characters. She walks in. She's 5'11". She's gorgeous. She was a supermodel. Um, she has all these incredibly iconic movies behind her. So I'm kind of intimidated. Sure. She sat down, and I fell in love with her. She's charming. She's lovely. She has a great wit. She's got great intelligence. And she's Sybil Shepherd. We're talking with Steve Gutenberg. Check him out Saturday in the Lifetime original film, How to Murder Your Husband. I've always uh, heard that famous people, when they meet one another, the thing to do is act like you guys already know one another. Is that the case the first time you meet Sybil Shepherd? First time I meet a famous person, I make out with them <laughs> right away. I don't care who they are. I don't care. All of a sudden, if, I'm thankful for my anonymity. I don't care if it's Professor Irwin Corey. I will make out <laughs> Including posthumously. You have to make out with them posthumously. That's terrific. Uh, I think that if I was a fan of Sybil Shepherd and, and still am, of course, and you, for the first few moments, I think you're like everybody else. Wow. I'm meeting Sybil Shepherd. Wow. I'm meeting Tom Selleck. Wow. You know, we're all basically audiences. So for the first couple of seconds, you're like, wow. And then you get to know the person and you realize that we're all the same, that we are all at work. We're trying to make the best of our lives. We're trying to make the world a better place. And we want to connect. And most people are like that. You know, there are people who are very private. There are celebrities that don't want to talk off screen, don't want to get to know you. But most people really are open and, and want to uh, make a friend. You alluded to uh, the first time you meet Tom Selleck. Obviously, you did a terrific picture with uh, he and Ted Danson, uh, Three Men and a Baby. And, and Three Men and a Little Lady. And uh, I know. But Cousin Brucey would have said that. <laughs> I'm just saying. But the reason I mentioned three men and a, and a baby is because I am an obsessive Star Trek fan. And by extension, I'm an obsessive Leonard Nimoy fan. A lot of people don't realize that Leonard Nimoy actually directed that picture. What's it like to work with Leonard Nimoy when he doesn't have pointed ears and he's behind the camera directing? A lot of us know him as such a powerful on-screen presence. Right. But we don't necessarily picture him as a director. What was he like to work with as a director? Leonard, first of all, those are his ears. They are strangely pointed. I have no idea why he wears a hat most of the time. Um, Leonard was a brilliant guy, incredibly friendly. The way I described him is a fireball inside an iceberg. He's laconic. He is stoic. He comes from a Russian background. Um, and inside, he's funny and charming, and I miss him very much. Very intelligent. And he was an acting teacher. So as an actor, when you're working with him, he knows how to get inside you, how to make your, your talent come out the best way. He's able to hone your craft in a few minutes and find what you're missing and, and celebrate what you have. He was a really terrific guy. When we would go out to dinner, and I went out to dinner with him a lot, we would both get recognized, and he would say, uh, when we get photographs taken, he goes, you know, the Native Americans say, 
when someone takes your picture, you lose your soul. Gutenberg, you have like negative soul now. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed working with him. He was really smart. And he made that movie. He, and you know the wonderful part of that movie, Three Men and a Baby, was probably two days after we wrapped, he had a finished picture. He was editing, which a lot of it directors mm. do, during the shooting. But there was no fat. So basically, he sat down two days after we shot and watched the movie. He was very, very talented. The, the chemistry that you have in that film with uh, the two <clears throat> other primary co-stars really jumps off the screen. It really seems like you guys are friends in real life. Are you just three really good actors, or did you guys actually become friends? In we real became life? friends. Um, we actually had a great opportunity. We got up there, and we were supposed to have, I think, a week's rehearsal, then shoot. But the script wasn't ready. So we had two weeks to go out to dinner every night, hang out every day, go to the gym, hang out. I uh, gotcha. And we got to know each other really well. Both Tom and Ted are genuinely wonderful guys. Um, and, and Ted would always say, you know, we're the same guy and we'll never be in another movie together <laughs> because we're basically the same person. Um, but they, they are and, and will always be great guys. You talk about uh, three 1980s a uh, icons, right? I, I think you have to put uh, Magnum <clears throat> P.I., Cheers, and the Police Academy franchise on there. To have them all in two films like that is really, is really something. There were two other films in the 1980s that were huge. Box office successes, critical successes. And it's rumored that you were offered a starring role in both of them. One is Josh in Big the Tom Hanks role. The other is Peter Vankman, Bill Murray's role in Ghostbusters. True or false? Were you offered those roles? Now, I'll tell you something. Your memory becomes a lot uh, more golden as you get older. First of all, Tom Hanks was the only guy who could play Josh. I mean, he was incredible. But I did meet Penny and Irie... And Penny I, Marshall. And Penny Marshall. And uh, she said, I really would be very interested in you doing this movie. Um, and I had another offer. And I took that offer without exploring it even. And, and, and with, uh, with Ghostbusters, I don't think that's true. I know that they – my agent did call me and say that the cast and director and, and uh, Ivan Reitman were really interested in you because they didn't have the third guy. I guess Bill was holding out or something to that effect. Um, and I was excited about doing it. Um, and, uh, and, but then I took another picture. I was really lucky for about 17 years – I was not home for 10, 11 months a year. I was shooting all year, every day. I would finish on a Wednesday. I'd start again on a Thursday. Uh, and I was uh, very, very fortunate to keep working. And I still am. You know, I still do the same thing. I wake up in the morning, I have my coffee, I have my breakfast. I call a couple of friends. I speak to a couple of family members. And I go to work. And I've done the same thing for 47 years. Uh, not bad for a guy that was told at 16 by a fairly prominent agent that you're the last guy I would ever pick to be a movie star. It's true. But the, my godfather, a guy named Michael Bell, um, helped me get into the business. And he introduced me to his agent. And it was right in front of uh, the Time Warner Center. Uh, and I went up to their offices. And I sat down. I was really excited about it, being an actor. And he told his assistants and the other people to leave. And this big agent told me, just run to the elevator, run to Penn Station, and get out of here because you will never, you're the last guy I would ever pick to be a movie star. I didn't hear a word he said. I was 16 years old and it was 
great. So he tells you, you don't have the look, you don't have the talent, your name is ridiculous. Yeah, right? too Italian. And yet you have... <laughs> You've succeeded in a field where I have to think that even becoming a working actor and making a living as a working actor yeah. is almost as rare as winning the lottery. Oops. How did you overcome uh, what this uh, big Hollywood agent, what his view of your talents and your look and your name was? I'll answer it, then I'll just go on a tangent. Work ethic. It's really about showing up every day. You know, Lou Gehrig used to say that he wasn't the greatest baseball player in the world, but he showed up every day. And that's what life is all about, just showing up. Thomas Edison would say, I'm not the most brilliant inventor in the world, but I come to the laboratory every day and I sit there. And sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes something does. I'm like a 300 hitter. You know, a 300 hitter strikes out or pops out seven times out of 10. Only three times a bat out of 10 does he get a hit. And the difference between a 250 hitter and a 300 hitter is one hit every mm. 20 times a bat. So my deal is... I show up every day. And the fact is, I am amazed. And any of us, you, you're a talent. I'm talent. Any actor that makes a living, all the clothes on your back, the, the food that your kids eat, the rings that your wife wears, the heat in your house is all from being a, a piece of talent. And, and the odds are so small to make a living. I'm so grateful every day. I've not been a waiter since I'm 19 years old. And I've been a waiter. I, I was a pool guy. I sold cars. I sold encyclopedias, pots and pans. I worked at a stable. I'm so thrilled that I can make a living doing what I love and my craft. Probably the same with you. It, the chances are so small that any actor makes a living. There are 160,000 actors in the SAG after Guild. Maybe one or two percent make a living. I mean, it's unbelievable. And there are so many great actors in the world. Go to Minnesota. Mm. Go to Minneapolis to the Guthrie. Go overseas and go to some great French theaters. Go to Japan and watch some great theaters. Australia. Go go to anywhere in Long Island. Go to Off Broadway. Go to go to New Brunswick, where I'm, I'm actually going to do a, a show at the George Street Playhouse. There are great actors everywhere. But it takes a different blood to leave your family and go to Hollywood and get discovered. It takes a different animal. And I'm so grateful that I can make a living being an actor. Uh, two things. One, um, you're going to have to give me your card because uh, I am in the market for some nonstick pans. So if you end up going back into the pot and pan I've got, sale business. I've got business. old Teflon in the car. Right now, I'll give it to you at a discount. 50% off, all cash. I don't, I don't take any of your, your bull checks because I don't know all about you, Cousin Brucey. I know about you, Cousin Brucey. Oh, wait a minute. But I was going to ask you what advice, uh, what career advice or life advice you'd give to people that aren't in radio or aren't in uh, acting and it seems like it's just that is show up keep going and yeah. work ethic I, I my advice is don't think just do take moments alone to think but then just do just keep doing keep selling keep showing up keep going to work get there early come in early if you're working at an office get there early let the boss see you're there early sometimes you know a friend of mine who has a big company says I don't hire people for what they can do, I hire them for who they are. I can teach you how to fly, how to fly the space shuttle. I can't teach you to show up early. Mm -hmm. I can't teach you to not lie. I can't teach you to not cheat. But I can teach you to be the CEO of this company. So I, I always say, don't think, just do. Think by yourself. Take some moments to figure out your plan 
and just keep going. Uh, talking with Steve Gutenberg, see him Saturday on the Lifetime channel in How to Murder Your Husband alongside Sybil Shepherd. It's a true story, uh, so you can compare your version, your viewing of the film to how the appeal in the uh, in the trial turns out. If you show up early, though, Steve, I'm guessing it's a lot easier to sneak on to the Paramount lot, right? Yeah, that's what I did. When I was 17, I snuck onto the Paramount lot. I commandeered my own office, made my own phone calls, uh, and uh, found, found myself into a job. Uh, that is the kind of thing that you only read about in in novels. That's the kind of thing you only see in movies. You did it in real life. Yeah, I was very lucky. Uh, I know one of the first uh, major paid acting gigs you ever did was a Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial. My first job. I, I'm curious, did that build a brand loyalty with Kentucky Fried Chicken? If you have a choice of, say, going to uh, Roger's Chicken or KFC or uh, some other, ch- or uh, you know, whatever, Chick-fil-A or KFC, do you stick with KFC because of their early role? In in boosting your career, I did this commercial. I sat right next to Harlan, who is the, the colonel, and he fainted, and I caught him. And I was so nervous that I caught him, and he actually was revived and was so angry that he did faint because it was so hot. We were shooting the Rose Bowl, and after that, the, the director said, "Gutenberg, you're golden." Um, and uh, I don't recognize any other fried chicken, whether it's. P-O-P-E-Y-E-S or any of those others. There's only one fried chicken. It's Kentucky Fried Chicken. And you better believe it, buddy. <laughs> the uh, uh, one thing that a lot of folks may not know about you is that in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. I don't Katrina, wear underwear. <laughs> is the other thing that nobody no, knows. No, everybody knows that. All trust right, me. Oh, shit. Uh, but uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, you spent a lot of time volunteering. I think you actually wrote a play about uh, what what occurred in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. I did. I went down there, and I, uh, I had the most extraordinary experience. I went down there as an anonymous volunteer. Uh, and I slept uh, in the Astrodome where after, um, and, and it was just an incredible experience. Uh, I was there for three weeks, and it was, it was just unbelievable that our country <clears throat> didn't rescue these people sooner, that our country didn't drop 10,000 troops right there to help all those people. Um, so I, spoke, I was up in Long Island. <clears throat> and I asked my mom and dad, do you think I should go down there? Uh, and they were really worried about me going down there. <clears throat> so we went to a sporty goods store, and I got heavy-duty gloves and boots um, and work pants. And I uh, drove down to uh, Houston because uh, I went. I first went down to New Orleans, and it was really hard to get in there. I did a couple of days in New Orleans. Then I drove to Houston, and I spent three weeks down there at the Liberty Center. Uh, there were 20,000 people who had real problems, and I did security. I did babysitting. I worked in the food department. Um, I worked in the medical department. Um, I broke up a rape in the uh, bathroom. Um, there was uh, I helped set up a barber shop. Um, I slept next to the people. Um, and, uh, and then one or one, about five nights, I got to sleep at the Sam Houston hotel. Uh, but it was an incredible experience and it was wonderful to be down there as an anonymous person. Mm. I didn't go down as a celebrity and I watched a lot of celebrities down there. And then I watched a lot of news people 
choose who they would speak to as if they were choosing melons. They would say, what's your problem? I lost my mom and I lost my sister. Okay, how about you? I lost my mom, my dad, and my sister. You're better. And they interviewed those people. And it was really a horrible experience to watch the media pick and choose who would be the better interview. Um, and And I watched a lot of celebrities do celebrity moments and photo ops and that part was kind of huh. off-putting. I know I can imagine. That's, it must be a rare thing for you to be anonymous. <clears throat> it was, yeah, you know, but the truth is, I really do believe anybody. You put on a, you know, you, if you don't stand out and try to stand out, I think even Elvis could have walked around Times Square without anybody knowing. If you make a spectacle of yourself, then people know who you are. Uh, you are working all the time and uh, doing a lot of great work. What do you do for fun? I know you've confessed your bagel enthusiasm before, but what do you do for fun? If you had leisure time, what would you be doing? I like to spend time with my family. I love spending quiet time with my friends, um, just just sitting and talking. I like to talk meaningfully. That's fun for me. I'm not a great small talker. A friend of mine um, who <clears throat> lives here in New York, whenever I see him, I <laughs> He less I don't know, a few times ago, I don't know, about 10 years ago, he said, you know, Stephen, you never, like, we always get really deep right away. And that's who I am. I, I'm, I talk meaningfully. And that's what I'm interested in. I mean, of course, I, you know, I like working out or, you know, I like playing a little golf. Uh, I enjoy, I tell you what I really makes me happy is making the people around me happy, is making everyone around me my family, friends, people that I just meet, making their lives a little better. I like giving out money to homeless people. Um, I love my friends, Alan Jill Siegel, taught me how to make tons of sandwiches and give them out to homeless in Santa Monica out there when I, I, when I was living out there. Um, I enjoy making other people happy. That is fun for me. That's my fun. I... I like spending my money on the people I love and making their lives easier. Um, I, you know, my best friend, one of my, my, my best friend, Joey, and I, we talk all the time about stuff. And, um, you know, we always say, you know, we just need a T-shirt and jeans, a pair of sneakers. And, you know, we, we, we were happy. Um, and I got a, a buddy of mine, Liam, who we talk deeply about about things and we're both regular guys we both just have sisters and Liam and I always talk about normal stuff stuff that makes us happy uh and I got a friend Epstein and Liam is one of my best friends and Epstein's one of my best friends and Epstein and I can go to Houlihan's and you know just enjoy sitting there doing nothing or you know Bennigan's or any of the you know Denny's or some diner um I don't even know if Houlihan's is in business anymore. but There's a handful. In it, Jersey. Oh, the Jersey. Yeah. But I like just spending time talking about normal stuff. Finally, Stephen, I appreciate you being so uh, generous with your time. And uh, I'm going to be watching How to Murder Your Husband and uh, making sure my wife doesn't watch it because we don't want Tell her having her any Tell her the ideas. title is How to Give Your Husband a Back Rub. <laughs> that's what, that's what exactly. I told my wife.
It's how to give your husband a back. It's a surefire way to get Rachel not to tune in. Oh, yeah. But um, you've, uh, you've grown up in New York. You've spent a lot of Rachel, years. Rachel, Jewish? She, well, uh, she's of Jewish derivation, but she's Christian. Yeah. Oh, she's Christian. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, um, but you, <clears throat> so you've experienced New York and California. Answer us once and for all. Right turn on red. Yes? No. Dangerous. You have to be very careful. Right turn on red. You got to watch yourself, you know, and and be very, very careful. Um, I would say that um, L.A., California, really great place to enjoy natural resources. The beach. Whenever I'm out there, I go to the I go in the water every day. Um, I love the mountains. I love hiking. Um, and, uh, and but it's a different. It's the West. It's not as friendly. You have to work a little harder. Mm. Uh, East Coast, a little friendlier. Um, you got to learn to not get hit by a car, not get hit, get hit by a, a taxi, um, and uh, not not wolf down your food because then you, if you walk through the streets, you have a bad stomach. Uh, but the truth is about the world, there are nice people everywhere. And mothers... In every country, every city, mothers in L.A., mothers in New York, mothers upstate New York, mothers in London, mothers in Iran, mo- mothers in North Korea, we're all the same people. Mothers want to make sure their kids are okay. They want to take them to Disneyland. We're all the same. The truth is everyone is the same. We want to have nice lives. We want to give our kids good things. We want to be healthy. We want to be loving to our parents and friends. We're all the same everywhere. That's really the truth. Steve, it is a real treat to have you on the program. It's a great, great pleasure to meet you in person. Best of luck with the film. I hope we can do this again soon. I wish you and your family good health and success. The great Steve Gutenberg. Uh, do be sure to check that out on the Lifetime channel this weekend, How to Murder Your Husband. And uh, there's a whole bunch of other things that we could have spent time asking about, but uh, hopefully we'll get to do that the next time he's in town. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. It is very apropos that, um, that Steve did mention Elvis there. And, you know, that was before the news that uh, Lisa Marie passed away. It was when uh, Steve was in the studio a day or two ago. And... Um, Lisa Marie, Elvis's only child, the only child of Elvis and Priscilla Presley, just made a public appearance for Elvis's birthday at Graceland last week. And it's interesting. They call it not his birthday, but they call it a uh, the the a birth anniversary or something. I guess that's what you do when someone has has passed away. This was uh, Lisa Marie Presley last week at Graceland. Today, uh, he would have been 88 years old. Um, it's hard to believe. Um, and I think that he'll be proud. I think this year has been an incredible year. I think the movie was incredible, um, and I'm very proud of it. I hope you guys are too. Yeah. So I really appreciate. I was trying to think of what to say where I don't sound like I was planning on saying anything <laughs> scripted. Um, but I just, it's just so moving how every year you come from all over the world and it's its moving to me and my family. And thank you. I mean, that is just, just so sad. 
I uh, I follow Priscilla Presley on uh, on Facebook, and I'm a fan of Priscilla Presley, and always have been, and, and of Lisa Marie. And just a couple of days ago, Priscilla was uh, congratulating the actor that plays Elvis Presley in the movie for either being nominated for or winning the Golden Globe for that depiction. And then uh, all of a sudden, I'm looking at her Facebook yesterday, and I see that her daughter, Lisa Marie, has been hospitalized. A couple hours later, I get all these news alerts that she's passed away. It's just, um, it's it's incredibly heartbreaking. It it is. I mean, this was somebody that had a lot of talent, and uh, was uh, very beautiful, and seemed to have a great lust for life, and somebody that uh, I think probably had a whole bunch of issues to deal with uh, because of uh, her upbringing. And I know the loss of her son, who killed himself, was not an easy thing for her either. And I imagine we're going to learn more about the passing of Lisa Marie in the coming days. But it's interesting. The other incredibly famous musician that Lisa Marie Presley has always been associated with has been Michael Jackson. And I remember when they were married, it's hard to believe, it's almost 30 years ago now. It was back in 1995. They were married. And then they did this big sit-down with Diane Sawyer. And what I remember at the time, and I haven't heard this interview since 1995, but what I remember at the time about this interview that was so weird, quite frankly, is that Michael Jackson, who was always known, at least at that point in his life, for wearing odd clothing and odd accessories, whether it's one glove, whether it's this or that, he was wearing, if you remember, shin guards during the interview. His interview with Diane Sawyer, he's sitting there wearing golden shin guards. And I remember uh, I was watching the Met game, the Met announcer, I think it was Tim McCarver and maybe Gary Thorne or uh, Ralph Kiner, they were wondering if that would be the next fashion accessory to take off because of Michael Jackson wearing it in this interview. Needless to say, it did not. But here is that uh, Diane Sawyer special uh, from 1995, right after Lisa Marie and Michael Jackson were married. It occurs to me, looking at the two of you, I have got to start by asking how this marriage took place, how it began. Let me guess that it was not over miniature golf and a, and a hot dog someplace. <laughs> when did it start? When was the dating? Well, we first met, she was seven years old and I was 17. This was in Las Vegas. She used to come and see my show all the time. We had the only family show on the strip. It's the Jackson Five. And um, she used to come as a little girl and sit right up front. She came quite often, but she came with a lot of bodyguards. And, and had you stayed in touch over all these sure, years? Sure, sure. Then she'd come backstage. Then I'd, you know, talk and say hi. Then she'd come again. And I thought she was sweet and loving, and I hope I, I always hoped I'd see her again. And who first talked about marriage? We didn't stay in touch. After we didn't that. stay in touch after that. No. He, he had. Go ahead. You want to say what happened? No, you can say. You, you have a good memory. No, you said you were going to say it. <laughs> Our first argument okay. here on <laughs> this hour. Um, who? So then, 2005. Obviously, this was a fairly short marriage. They got divorced shortly thereafter. 2005, Priscilla and Lisa Marie are on Oprah's TV show talking about Lisa Marie's marriage to Michael Jackson. Someone came in and said, Lisa got it, married. And I said, no, she did not get married. And I said, who did she marry? And I said, Michael Jackson. <laughs> and you said, and you said. I said, no way. She wouldn't do that to me. Not again. You did that with Danny almost. Too. I did it with Danny, too. This was a bad Danny habit also. I was in at the you time. Know, she called me the day she was getting married. And Mom, said, I'm married. I gotta go. I'll see you no, later. Said, you gotta come here for the ceremony. 
I'm only inviting you. And I went, oh my God, that was to Danny. And I had to rush over, you know, to, for the ceremony. And, and that was a shock. And then she married Michael and, and I denied that. I said, they can't, they, there's no way she would do that to me. And sure enough, it was on the news and I heard it again. There helicopters above your house. And there was yeah. helicopters all over my home, you know, trying to see if she was coming over or if they'd be around or what I would do, you know, or drown myself in the pool. <laughs> There you have it. Lisa Marie Presley, gone at 54. You know, you think about how nice it is once in a while, just going back to the conversation with Steve Gutenberg, to be anonymous sometimes. Here is someone who was famous every day of her life. And I have to think that there are a lot of burdens that come with that. There's some benefits, but there's got to be in a tremendous mental and psychological burden that comes with being famous your entire life. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. You know what I thought about doing? And good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I've told you, much like Santa Claus, I am keeping a list and checking it twice of all the people that have unsubscribed from my email list. And my plan is to confront them whenever possible for unsubscribing. And I'm th- here's what I'm thinking of doing. Honestly, I'm not joking about this. I am. You, know, you remember the film that, And Then There Were None? which I believe was based on an Agatha Christie book. Um, but it's in a mystery. And there's a lot of different books and films like this where all these people, even the film Clue is sort of like this, where all these people show up somewhere and they don't know all the people that they're meeting with and they're expecting to see somebody and then something goes wrong. I am going to invite all of the people that have unsubscribed from my email list somewhere and give them the kind of invitation that they feel compelled to attend. And then get all these people in a room together. And then I don't know what. Maybe we'll do a murder mystery or maybe we'll stage something. I don't know. I'm still hashing out the details of this. But I, I, I'm i looking for some ideas on next-level trolling for the people that have unsubscribed from my, from my email list. Because uh, it is irritating. But every time I send out one of the um, email blasts, telling people what I'm up to and so forth. Always a couple of people unsubscribe. I think what happens is uh, people get annoyed. Oh, what am I getting this email for at 1 o'clock in the morning? Let me unsubscribe. So I, I'm trying to make up for the people. We sent out an email blast yesterday. So if you didn't get it, uh, check your spam folder. Or that means that you're not on my email list. Some people unintentionally unsubscribe. Neil from Staten Island, for instance. Last email blast we sent out, he said he didn't get it. And then I went and researched he had unsubscribed. So you want to set up a sting yes. for all the people that unsubscribe right. to your email list. Like they do with people who like don't pay their taxes right. or child support. That's and they right. go, you won a prize. That's what you, you won a prize of $500. Come to this address. That's right. To collect I, have your to, prize. I have to find out what the hook will be, you know, to once I get all these people in a room together. I, I mean, I think uh, poison gassing is probably a little extreme, but... Um, I don't know. It won't be that. But we got to figure out something. 
Uh, if you have any ideas, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Or if you actually want to be added to my email list, you can email me, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, what I was going to say is I sent out this email blast before the show. And whenever I send out one of these email blasts, a couple of people always unsubscribe. So I'm trying to make it up with new subscribers. So if you want to be one of the new subscribers, just write to me and say add me to your list and so forth. Now, um, I will say also that I'm going to be honored in April by the National Psoriasis Foundation at uh, this event. It's not quite a gala, but it's a dinner. So um, I have not yet bought my table, but I'm going to buy a table this weekend. And if you want to come to that, it's 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 pretty small. So I expect the event to actually sell out quickly. But if you want to come and see me honored, I imagine my wife will come. Maybe we'll even bring Carmine. Uh, the details are in the email that I just uh, blasted out. Coming up. We're going to do denunciations in a minute. We've got Marlena Shivo coming in next hour. And I'm very excited. A week ago at this time, we had a whole discussion about DNA and whether or not it's prudent to hand over your DNA to one of these DNA testing websites, uh, Ancestry, 23andMe, whatever the case may be. And, you know, I got a lot of um, feedback on this, some positive, some not so positive and initially, it was reported that uh, somebody, uh, that they found the killer of the Idaho people, CNN reported this, through his family members using one of these DNA testing websites. Turned out that was not the case. Turned out it was through the DNA in the garbage. And we got that information from uh, Gino. And I corrected that as soon as we got it. As soon as we got the information, we corrected it within the same hour. But that was not good enough for this one gentleman that emailed me who says, oh, you corrected it a bit later. The thing that annoys me is you had me all scared for doing my ancestry DNA test, and your premise was completely false. And you ranted for over an hour on your false premise. Indeed, you're a Curtis student and a NYU lazy student and fat and stupid. Thank you, Phil. Clearly one of our great, uh, great fans there. But um, what I wrote back to Phil, because it's very easy to just be insulted or, you know, say thanks for listening. I wrote back before you make the decision to hand over your DNA to one of the to total strangers, to an anonymous corporation that you don't know what they're going to be doing with it. You need to listen to my uh, conversation on this subject Friday morning in this hour. That conversation is coming up in 15 minutes. So please be sure to listen to that. You want to comment on anything we've done thus far? You're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'll tell you, my favorite um, Facebook group comment yesterday was the guy that called me a radio host in name only. Basically, he said I'm a closet leftist. Frank Morano blathers on about being in the middle, yet whenever he has a panel... The two left-wing hacks, Jolly and Wiener, are on air, and mysteriously the conservative, Tancredo, somehow can't get through. It wasn't that he couldn't get through. He fell asleep. Sorry. I wish he didn't. Uh, Frank is what his buddy, Nicole Maliotakis, is a rhino. And then he explained it's radio host in name only, and um, which I thought was very clever. Then another guy in the Facebook group responds to him and says, funny. I've always thought just the opposite. My personal bias makes me question Frank's political leanings when some of his guests go off on the left unchecked. You know what I've noticed? You can't make anybody happy. If you're looking for a radio program 
that will just um, provide comfort to whatever your political ideology is, this is not the show for you. If you're right-wing, you're going to hear some left-wing viewpoints. If you're left-wing, you're going to hear some right-wing viewpoints. Tough. Hopefully that you find the show entertaining and enjoyable. And you know, honestly, I try to make politics a very small amount of what we do on this program because there's so much political talk out there. And by the time the middle of the night comes around, I feel like people just need a break. What I'm really interested in is this UAP report. I've been analyzing it a good portion of the afternoon yesterday. And uh, we're going to break it down with uh, Dr. Andresen on Tuesday of next week. So I'm going to save a lot of our discussion for that in all likelihood. But uh, Steve in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Steve. Uh, what is on your mind, Steve? All right, Frankie, baby. And first, I'm going to serve some red meat to the lions here tonight. Um, when Lisa Marie married Michael Jackson, it was 1994. And the year before... Michael Jackson, this is the first time the public is hearing that Michael Jackson is being uh, rumored or told or accused of of molesting children, uh, little boys sleeping in his house, in his bedroom. So to me, the Michael Jackson, Lisa Marie Presley marriage was a sham just to try to bring back Michael Jackson's reputation, bring back some publicity for him, and divert the attention for what took place in 93. Those charges of you know molesting or children sleeping in his bedroom, they were little boys. And so I, I feel that anybody who protects somebody, and Michael Jackson was a homosexual pedophile, anybody who protects him is, is in on it too. And to me, it's not, it's not only disgusting. We're supposed to protect our uh, children. That's a nice thing to say about somebody the day after they die. That uh, okay? I mean, give her a break. Say, give it a day. Right, her body's not even cold yet, and you're. Uh, that's the first thing you want to mention. It's not today's not the day. Do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. June is in New Jersey. Hello, June. Hi, Frank. How are you? Doing great. Thanks, June. Um, I want. I tried to call before, but you were busy talking to Steve. I wanted to tell you that um, I knew Steve when I lived in Los Angeles. I met him at a New York reunion, and he's a very nice guy in real life. And um, the night before I had my baby, we watched Three Men and a Baby. And I I told him, and uh, Tom Selleck and I, and his, of course, his wife, had our babies the same exact time. In the same hospital right down the hall. Oh, that's and, uh, funny. I, yeah, and I sent lollipops to their room that said, it's a girl. We both had girls. Well, that, that's some story. Uh, I, uh, I, you know, yeah, we, when, when my wife had uh, Carmine, we didn't have anybody famous in the hospital with us. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, and I went to the Lamaze class with his wife the whole time, and we got to meet him. And my mother was so happy to meet him. He's a very nice guy. I can imagine. I wanted, well, go, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to tell uh, Steve, but. Yeah. Well, thank so you. You, you told me that's a, uh, a, a a hopefully some sort of a consolation. Thank you, June. All right. Without further ado, there are a lot of people that need to be called out, including the other side of midnight presents denunciation. West Virginia Public Broadcasting. A West Virginia journalist lost her job last month after she reported about alleged abuse of people with disabilities within the state agency that runs West Virginia's foster care and psychiatric facilities. Now, that's a pretty big story. That's exactly the kind of story journalists should be breaking. But Amelia Farrell Nicely, a reporter at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, said she was told to stop 
reporting on the Department of Health and Human Resources after leaders of the embattled agency threatened to discredit the publicly funded TV and radio network. She later learned her part-time position was being eliminated. Not cool, West Virginia Public Broadcasting. This is exactly the kind of media watchdoggery that we need all journalistic outlets to be doing. So, West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Eric Geller. Um, I'm not someone that roots for uh, people to uh, get fired, but I'm glad that Eric Geller got fired. Uh, Are you familiar with Eric Geller? He's a reporter for Politico. This is what he tweeted after Pope Benedict XVI's death, okay? Eric Geller, wherever he is, maybe he can go hang out with Steve from Manhattan because the two of them would have a gay old time together. This is what he said. This is a reporter tweeting publicly. Homophobic, pedophile, protector, and Hitler youth alumnus dead at 95. Tweeted that on New Year's Eve about a guy who literally millions maybe hundreds of millions of Catholics around the world really respected and looked up to. That's what you tweet the day after. I just, I don't know what goes on in people's heads where you think that that's an appropriate thing to say. You know know what it is? We're just in an ocean, whether it's on, we're, we're in an era, whether it's on radio like Steve or on Twitter like Eric Geller, where society rewards outrageousness and outlandishness. And I guess he thought, oh, I'm being provocative. I'll get a lot of retweets and a lot of likes. You know, you're a real jerk if you're going to tweet something like that the day after the Pope dies. So, Eric Geller, I do denounce you. And I I very rarely have said this about anybody, but I'm glad he was fired. I also must denounce this Vietnamese scammer. Um, This is another... Anna Delvey-style fraudster, and uh, her web of lies appears to be unraveling. So you have this situation where this woman named Tina did scam after scam after scam. Tina Duong was what they knew her as. And she told all sorts of acquaintances, including people that had paid for... uh, All sorts of things for her. That her father was a government official. Other times she said she was a businesswoman. Uh, She said said that her father was a businessman. No matter what her cover story was, few people doubted her wealth. And her spending habits showed a flippant attitude towards money. There were candid photos at home with branded bags, generous meals she would buy for the staff at her favorite hair salon, and a sleek silver Rolls Royce sitting in front of her wedding venue in 2018. But in recent months, the truth has surfaced. Tina Duong's real name is not Tina. It's Nin Thi Van An, a 27-year-old from a poor and remote province in northeastern Vietnam. And now she's been become known to the rest of the country, or most of the country, as the Vietnamese Anna Delvey, who at New York Magazine exposed uh, years ago as just a total fraud. And now there's a Netflix series about her called Inventing Anna, which is very popular. So like Delvey, Tina would splash out on expensive gifts for those around her 
and create this image of effortless wealth before asking them for big favors, often involving money. I knew a guy like this. It didn't end up well for him either. And after years of grifting, this heiress persona was upended by a series of fraud allegations by victims ranging from fake business partnerships to outright theft and love scams. Each sensational new detail was published in the media. So she's captured national attention all over Vietnam in an unprecedented way. For instance, in September, and I'm not going to mention all of them, it's a fascinating story. But in September, uh, Tina's deceit was thrust into national attention in a Facebook post Na Lee, a cosmetic clinic owner, and Tina's former sister-in-law exposed Tina's use of fake relatives at the extravagant 2018 wedding she had, adding that she had borrowed a total of essentially $723,000 from the family. So following this revelation, all sorts of other resourceful people on the Internet uncovered that Tina had married another man in southern Vietnam in March 2021. So, and she would vanish just weeks after the fairy tale wedding, taking all sorts of money from the new husband as well. This woman is a total con artist, and don't be surprised if you don't see a Netflix series about her sometime soon. I have to denounce the FAA. The officials are still trying to figure out exactly what led to the FAA system outage on Wednesday, but it led to... Thousands, this computer outage led to thousands of flights being canceled or postponed. There's no reason that the Federal Aviation Administration should have a glitch in its system or a a problem in its backup system, whatever the case may be, that leads to this sort of widespread system failure. Do you have any idea of the thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people who were um, severely inconvenienced because of this FAA system outage. And, you know, people get on planes. They make uh, trip itineraries, whether it's for work or whether it's for leisure. And my heart really goes out to these people that got their whole trips, sometimes even for business, screwed up, all because the FAA couldn't manage to have a computer system run effectively without this kind of an outage. Outage. FAA, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the New York Times. There was a a blockbuster New York Times story all about this war in Ukraine. And these idiots, uh, and again, I, I feel like I'm being excessively harsh with people today, but this is really a serious thing. These idiots accidentally leaked phone numbers of Russian soldiers criticizing the war in Ukraine. They leaked the phone numbers of Russian soldiers criticizing the war in Ukraine. Let me ask you a question. How do you think Vladimir Putin's going to react to that? Some of his own soldiers criticizing the war. He Now that he's got their phone numbers, do you think it's going to end well for these soldiers? Well, whatever ends up happening to these servicemen... I think the New York Times bears some responsibility. Oh, and not just the soldiers. Apparently, some of the civilian family members they were speaking to. Some of these people were providing a frank assessment of the ongoing Ukraine war, blunt criticisms of their superiors, including Vladimir Putin. And this puts people at risk of reprisal 
from their own government and other third parties. This is crazy. Um, I don't think it's too much to ask that we just make sure we don't expose people's personal data or identifying information when it's literally a matter of life and death. I want to denounce Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. WalletHub has done an exhaustive study looking at the best and worst states to raise a family. They compared the 50 states across five key dimensions, family fun, health and safety, education and child care, affordability and socioeconomics, and lo and behold, Mississippi is the worst state in the entire country to raise a family. My sympathies to the Mississippians. Um, We don't have this person's last name, just his first name, Elijah. Elijah is a, uh, I guess he's a gamer. And he was playing this game called uh, Rainbow Six Siege. I'm not up on these games, but apparently it's pretty popular. His house was raided by police. Now, you might say, why would they raid this guy's house, this poor little video gamer? Well, Elijah, newly denounced Elijah, as his business card is likely to say going forward, was playing this game, Rainbow Six Siege, at his home, and he butt dials 911. And because he's playing this game where you're shooting all sorts of people, whoever he's playing the game with, I don't know if it was someone in person at his home or someone he was on the, I know you can communicate with these people verbally through the game itself. He says, while the 911 operator is listening in, he says, I killed two people. So unbeknownst to the 911 operator who did the right thing, Elijah was making a comment to his teammates. So barely two minutes after Elijah confesses to this double homicide, several police officers show up at his front porch. The whole incident is captured on camera, on ring camera. And, you know, I'm going to link to it, actually, if you want to see this video at uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I just have to say, you got to be careful with these pocket dial incidents. But you have to be especially careful when you're um, dialing 911 and talking about killing people, even if it's only in a video game. If you want to see the video, I just linked to it, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Elijah, for carelessness, for sloppiness, I do denounce you. I must denounce Amanda Beeman. She is the communications director for the Olentangy Local School District near Columbus in Ohio. And uh, there's a Dr. Seuss book called The Sneetches. The Sneetches. I never read this. But a third grade teacher was reading it aloud to a class. After the Dr. Seuss classic. After one of the kids in class pointed out that the story was a lot like racial segregation in the bad old days. And you know what? That's a smart kid. Because that's precisely what this Dr. Seuss story is about. The book was the last of several books being read by this teacher 
as part of uh, an NPR Planet Money podcast illustrating simple economic lessons in children's book. But one student mentions race, which is an accurate interpretation of the book. And Amanda Beeman stops the teacher from finishing the book. So the te- the kid observes the story is, quote, almost like what happened back then, how people were treated, like white people disrespected black people. Beeman shuts down the reading, saying she wasn't comfortable because it seemed more about differences with race and everything like that. What? We're shutting down Dr. Seuss readings mid-story. Mid-story, not even prospectively. My goodness. My goodness. Amanda Beeman, I do denounce you. I must denounce Troy Burke. Troy Burke um, has been arrested in the theft of a bronze statue outside of the Make-A-Wish headquarters in Phoenix. Parts of the statue, according to the police, were sold by the suspect, Troy Burke. The item at the center of the incident was this bronze statue of a child whose story inspired the creation of the nonprofit group, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. The statue was installed back in 2018, and this guy was captured by security cameras and pulls up to the statue. Two people jump out, harness the statue, pull it from the base, and load it into the trunk before driving away. Police recovered pieces of the destroyed statue, and they arrested this one guy for theft and trafficking of stolen property. You've got to be a pretty sick SOB to steal a -A Make-A-Wish statue. I'm sorry. Uh, Troy Burke, I do denounce you. And finally, I must denounce Rockway Heath head football coach John Harrell. He's been placed on administrative leave after multiple players were hospitalized following an intense workout last week that required athletes to do nearly 400 push-ups. 400 push-ups! Now, look, I'm all for being a tough coach. I've done some coaching in my day, and I the, the players have had some choice words for me because of my treatment of them. Never in my life would I ever have someone, a young player, do 400 push-ups. One parent who didn't want to be identified because of fear of retaliation said her son has been hospitalized and diagnosed with a stress-induced muscle disorder that can damage cells and cause kidney damage, even failure in some cases. She said her son was forced to do three to 400 push-ups with no water breaks. This is in Texas, by the way. Two more Heath parents told the Dallas Morning News, the students did more than 350 push-ups. One of the parents said it was during a 60-minute time frame. Uh, the principal said several students needed medical attention, in some cases hospitalization. You know what? If you're a coach of a sports team, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be about improving students, not causing kidney failure, not causing them to be hospitalized. This coach has no business ever having anything to do with coaching young people or any people ever again. This guy is strongly denounced, John Harrell. All right, without further ado, uh, that concludes this week's edition of Denunciation. I am very excited uh, about the DNA discussion that we are going to have. Um, I have been reluctant to hand my DNA over 
for a variety of reasons. And in reading some of the work of Leslie Corbley, she's with the Libertas Institute, I am even more reluctant to hand my DNA over to a private company consisting of strangers I've never met. We'll explore why straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I got, I got, I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Quarter piece, got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I got hustle, though, ambition flow inside my DNA. I was born like this, it's born like this. Immaculate conception, not transformed like this. Kendrick Lamar singing about DNA. Uh, Once again, much like with the case of the Golden State Killer, looking at the arrest of Brian Koberger has a lot of people uh, asking questions about DNA. Now, initially, CNN reported that uh, they were able to catch this guy, at least in part, because of uh, DNA harvesting that was done by members of his family. Then it came out, no, 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 that's not the case. It was from the garbage of his parents' home. Slate reported just three days ago that investigators did indeed use forensic genealogy to zero in on suspect Brian Koberger, but they're not saying so. Uh, This has a lot of people raising questions about how DNA is used and where sort of these lines exist and what guardrails are there to prevent abuses by law enforcement and to safeguard people's uh, privacy. There are a number of potential pitfalls, especially when you're dealing with a justice system that is rife with uh, flawed science because DNA might be the gold standard in terms of evidence, but it is still not perfect. Well, what are the privacy implications? Aside from the criminal justice implications, um, what are the privacy implications? Uh, Someone that spent a great deal of time thinking about that and uh, speaking about that is Leslie Corbley. She's a pr- the privacy policy analyst at the Libertas Institute. Leslie, thanks so much for joining me. I know it's a tough hour. Hi, uh, my, my pleasure to be on. So, Leslie, just so folks understand uh, where you're coming from, what exactly is the Libertas Institute? Sure. So the Libertas Institute is a uh, libertarian think tank in Lehigh, Utah. So we do research, uh, make uh, recommendations for legislative changes as well. So you got you pronounce it li- li- Libertas? How did you pronounce it? Libertas. Libertas. Okay. I, li- yeah. I like my, my <laughs> pronunciation of Libertas. Sounds a little bit more, I don't know, it's a little bit more freedom-loving. All right, but we'll go with yours since it's your, it's your group, right? Uh, uh, so uh, sure. let's uh, talk about the, uh, the DNA situation generally. So um, when, when somebody hands over their DNA 
to one of these DNA testing websites and they get a handy little chart that says they're 70 percent Italian, 20 percent Irish, and they have all these new cousins that they uh, didn't know existed. And now they can make uh, make contact with them and stay in touch with them. They have all these people they're in touch with now in case they ever need an organ or something. That all sounds great. What's wrong with that? And why should people be at all concerned about uh, giving their DNA to one of these companies? Um, sure. So <laughs> the problem with giving, uh, the DNA over is really that you don't know how it's going to be used in the future. So first of all, uh, right now, corporate policies more or less govern, um, how easy it is for law enforcement to access, um, the databases. So, um, you'd have to look at the privacy policies of different, um, corporate entities to determine where they stand on some of those issues, right? So some of them are work more closely with law enforcement than others. And then um, in addition, it's not as if your DNA sample can only be used now to, de- to locate you, right? Uh, so a family member's DNA sample uh, could actually be used to track someone who's never uploaded their information to the system. So I have a a real concern about this, and it's one of the reasons that I have not done so, is because if my, um, you know, if my uh, great niece uh, sometime in the future gets, um, you know, involved in a law enforcement situation, I don't want the fact that I handed over a DNA sample to um, help the police cut any corners in terms of uh, catching her. Now, when I've mentioned this on the radio, I'm usually the villain, and everyone says, or at least 70% of the people that call in, and they'll all say, well, if your great niece did something wrong and broke a law, she should be arrested. And good for you for helping catch her. Why? Um, why are they wrong, or why am I wrong? How do you? How do you come down on that question, uh, Leslie? Sure. Well, it's not quite as simple as you know. Maybe someone make it sound of oh, well, if your great niece did something wrong, you would want want her to be to be caught. Uh, it's not as if this matching system is without any potential flaws. So from speaking to those who um, who work in the space um, of, of like what's called genetic genealogy, so that's how they actually track it, um, or the methods that they use would be generally called genetic genealogy, you have um, situations where, particularly with these corporate databases, you don't necessarily always see the chain of um, chain of custody with these samples. So uh, you could have a sample that's misnamed um, or other issues that could arise. (laughs) Uh, So it's not as if it's without error. All right. And so when you say that uh, there are uh, that it's not necessarily without error, one of the best examples of this, I think, is probably the Golden State killer investigation where there was a suspect initially arrested. What I, I don't think a lot of people realize is that suspect was later released, right? Um, I, I'm not sure if that suspect was later released, but I do know that the Golden State Killer Joe D'Angelo was cleared um, from a subsequent, I believe he had been charged with a DNA, from DNA, charged with a murder of a 14-year-old um, and was later cleared of that. So that actually could point to some of the exculpatory, um, so like DNA evidence can also be used for exculpatory purposes, which oftentimes law enforcement points out, right? Uh, this can be used uh, for exculpatory purposes. The problem I think comes when you're looking at um, sussing out suspects on the front end from using a relative's DNA. Again, my understanding being that there's the error of the chain of command or the chain of custody um, and potentially mismatching the DNA from a, a wrong name. And then there's also um, the problem of sort of the consumer consent aspect of people not being aware of, this, of how this could be used, um, as well as just the other 
those would be, I would say, the two primary ones. But, yeah, it can be used for exculpatory purposes as well. Uh, we're talking with uh, Leslie Corbley. She's with the Libertas uh, Institute, and she spends a lot of time thinking about and talking about privacy. Uh, what Beyond the criminal justice aspect of this, uh, Leslie, what are the other potential concerns about what people's DNA could be used for in the future? Really, I mean, you could dream up all kinds of not not great <laughs> hypotheticals, right, depending on particularly if this kind of information were ever to be sold. Now, obviously, right now, most companies have protocols uh, in relation to how this data is managed, but that's a corporate policy away from changing, right? Um, so it's not necessarily clear how these databases will be managed in the future uh, as to different uses. Um, certainly, uh, more private information that is readily available uh, could be used by, um, you know, bad faith actors, even private bad faith actors, right? Not not even mentioning law enforcement issues, but private bad faith actors could could cause problems. Well, um, you know, and, and you know, that's one of the other things that I brought up. I mean, we're, we've seen all these data leaks in recent years and all these hacks of, uh, in some cases, very uh, sophisticated or very high-end, at least people would assume they're very sophisticated, high-end uh, mainframes. If people's DNA is all um, in, say, one of these companies' uh, the systems and there's a hacker, what's what's in place to keep that hacker from leaking this private DNA information all over the place or selling it to somebody that might benefit from that DNA? I think the sale of it um, is probably what would be most troubling. Um, even if it's not, obviously something like that would not be legal, uh, would violate laws right now. But as we all know, laws are violated all the time, right? Um, and you can't necessarily put a cap on that. So I think when you're handing your something as valuable and as profoundly powerful as DNA over to a, uh, a third party, uh, it comes with trade-offs and possible costs um, that may not manifest until decades down the line. We we see all these shows on TV, Law and Order, so and so forth, and a lot of times on television, it seems like the DNA uh, evidence is just completely infallible. Uh, that it's just it's just perfect, and it will uh, always get you the right man or the right woman for the crime. But in reality, that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, um, no investigative method is really pardon, ever perfect. And while um, I think that there are good uses for DNA, for sure, um, and we should be thankful for the exculpatory evidence it can provide for those who have been wrongfully accused, we do need to be mindful of not you know, putting too much absolute trust in any invest any one investigative technique. Um, my understanding, for instance, is that as you go further down the line of tracking, for instance, through relatives, there's a higher error rate. Now, I'm not by no means a DNA expert, so you want to talk to someone mm-hmm. who, who um, you know, is an expert in that field to get a little more clarity on that. But from having talked to to those who have worked in the genetic genealogy space, I can say that it's it's not foolproof as far as the efficacy of, uh, you know, tracing and um, and analyzing the DNA samples. And uh, as particularly as it relates to um, commercial databases, I've I've heard concerns of, you know, you ha- you're having to trust in the corporate procedures, which is all fair and well if you may be someone looking uh, at your ancestry, right? But when you're talking about possible criminal investigations, things get a little more complicated in that regard. So where are we now in terms of what the law actually says? I know you alluded to the fact that a lot of the policy regarding what 
law enforcement is able to use is really up to these private corporations themselves. What state laws exist, what federal laws may exist that limit how investigative authorities can use DNA from one of these consumer genetic testing companies? Sure, there's not a lot of um, law on point here. So Again, if, if you're a consumer and you sign off to, um, you know, hand over your DNA to a company whose policy is, hey, we're going to share this uh, fairly openly with law enforcement. Um, once you've signed that, signed that off, you sort of signed your rights away to uh, a large degree. I know that there is a law out in Maryland, I believe, where they have uh, specific protocols for this. So they passed a law a year or two ago um, that regulates how the how law enforcement can access these databases. But it's a pretty new emerging area of technology and law right now. Uh, Chung with Leslie Corbley from the Libertas Institute. So if someone's listening to us right now, Leslie, and they would get a kick out of uh, sending their DNA and meeting relatives and uh, connecting with people online and doing all the interesting things that, uh, that you can do when you upload your DNA to one of these places, what would you encourage them, if anything, to be cautious about? Um, I would encourage people to really think through whether um, they want their DNA, whether they're comfortable with something as profoundly powerful as your DNA um, being in the hands of a third party where you really can't guarantee how it's going to be used in the future. I really think it's an issue of maybe the use now is fine, um, but you really have no idea what that's going to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now. and corporate policies change, and that—that uh, um, that is something to be aware of, right? You're not—you're not, <laughs> not sure. necessarily have the same ownership of Ancestry.com or GedMatch, and I'm just pulling out names of common databases, but um, you're not necessarily going to have the same manage- management in 10, 15, 20 years as you do now. And it's not really clear how, for instance, a um, consumer, let's say, who handed their DNA over when there were certain policies in place, how is that DNA sample going to be managed if there were to be changes in policy in the future, right? Um, these are some, some sort of fine points that it's not really clear how that's, what that's going to look like. Do we know exactly what happened in terms of the Idaho case and what law enforcement did in terms of, uh, in terms of DNA and in terms of possibly using one of these genetic testing companies' uh, information? Yeah, it does appear as though they they matched DNA from the crime scene against um, some of these databases or a consumer database. Um, it does not, to my knowledge, look like it's yet clear which um, databases um, was 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 matched with. Um, and I think it is also important to to recall that um, it's not as if uh, law enforcement has no access to genetic databases of their own. Um, they have access to, of course, FBI databases and other. Um, state-managed uh, DNA databases that they can cross-reference. Uh, obviously, access to um, ones that are built out in the private marketplace gives a larger sample. Right, sure. So uh, assuming then that the Idaho killer was caught, at least in part because of law enforcement's use of the, one of these genetic testing companies' uh, databases, there's going to be a lot of people listening to us that say, good. Well, you know, not only is it great that he was brought to justice for the murder of these four college students, but thank goodness he was not he was caught in time before he could go out and murder someone else. Why um, shouldn't everybody be cheering the fact that law enforcement has another way to catch murderers? 
Um, I mean, sure. We're, I think I don't think anyone's bemoans or begrudges uh, cases where uh, a murderer or a violent felon is brought to justice. I think we're we're all thrilled when when justice is served in those cases. I think the concerns come when with the potential for abuse, right? Um, you know, our justice system is set up on the premise that you're innocent until proven guilty and that the right, the accused should have, um, you know, certain rights and that we should be very concerned about uh, ensuring that when we serve justice, we're, we're convinced we have the right guy. Right. So I think that, that we need to be less concerned about um, murderers being brought to justice of something that we're all thrilled um, with that sure. result, but more concerned about uh, ensuring that there's a proper protocols uh, in place for, uh, ensuring that, that the methods you use are are accurate and um, and also that there's some kind of a again moving forward you're having to look at situations that are a lot more dicey. Uh, it's not as if someone hands over their information and then their information is cross referenced in an investigation that only involves the individual who's handed over the information. Right, you're looking at things getting a lot more um, complicated uh, as far as what it looks like for you to be handing over your DNA and the implications that has for, for others around you. As far as you're aware, Leslie, when, uh, uh, how is the law in most places in terms of um, the use of warrants? Do, do law enforcement agencies need to get any sort of a warrant before they can go poking around one of these companies' DNA databases, or do they just have to ask nicely enough to uh, XYZ genetic testing company and hope that that company says okay? Um, I'm, again, right now, some of that is governed by corporate policy. You're going to see different privacy policies for different um, – uh, companies, Jed matches policy, for instance, won't mirror some a, a policy like, say, Family Tree DNA or 23andMe or Ancestry. So they all have their privacy pages uh, clearly displayed on their website that show under what circumstance um, law enforcement may access the data. So for some, they allow an opt out where you can opt out of having your mat your sample included in a search of a, of the database, um, and others may be different. Uh, you know, Ancestry I think is a little more tight on their policies than say other companies maybe like GEDmatch, I think is a little less uh, restrictive. Uh, as far as the law goes, for instance, in Maryland, that's why I referenced their law, they do have some judicial oversight required uh, in order to access that data, but not specific to the state of Maryland. Gotcha. Gotcha. Needless to say, uh, I'm guessing you're not uh, handing over your DNA to one of these co- genetic testing companies anytime <laughs> soon. No, that's not on my agenda uh, now or any time in the near future. Granted, I guess if one of my family members has handed it over, there's, you know, um, some exposure there, not, you know, not to implicate myself in criminal activity, which I'm not involved in. But um, you get the idea that, again, it's not clear um, how much, how easy it may be to track people in the future. Um, And again, that's another thing I think people need to remember. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not predicting a dystopian future, but um, the easier... Everybody else is. You might as well, so... (laughs) Okay, we'll just go there then. Hypothetically, if we end up in a dystopia, the easier it is to track people um, for any criminal offense, you know, uh, it makes it easier to cross... Cross, cross-reference and find individuals, right? Um, so obviously we think right now about uh, states like – or cases like the Golden State Killer or um, this heinous crime in Idaho, and we're always glad when, um, a, a, again, a true – like a serial killer or a, just a disturbed, deranged psychopath is is caught and brought to justice. I don't think there's anyone who's 
like who's who's bummed when that result occurs. But I think you have to look forward into the future to understand that that may not always be the case, right? Um, and we have a lot of other systems of, frankly, surveillance uh, infrastructure that is um, being built out right now. And this could be used, of course, you know, your DNA is shed everywhere you go. <laughs> so it's not as if the only... Um, place where your DNA may land up is at a crime scene. Sure. No, that's that's important to keep in mind. It's a very different ball game than, uh, than fingerprints, right? All right. Um, Leslie, I want to thank you for uh, staying up late or getting up early and for a thought provoking discussion. I hope we can do this again soon. Great. Thanks so much. And my pleasure to be on. Thank you, Leslie Corbley, the Libertas Institute. Uh, She is the privacy policy analyst over there. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Benny Goodman, Locke Lamond, George Foreman, yes, the boxer, George Foreman, once claimed that uh, this was his favorite song. Uh, I'm skeptical. I'm not sure if that was a joke or not, but uh, why not? It's a great song. Uh, George Foreman celebrated his uh, birthday this week. He turned 74 years old uh, four days ago, so we're going to play some George Foreman-themed music. And I I, uh, received a a press release yesterday from the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame that they are inducting George Foreman into their Hall of Fame this year. So that's pretty exciting. Hopefully we'll be down there for it. And uh, I've always been a big George Foreman fan, not only as a fighter, but as a sort of a character, a pitch man and everything else, certainly as a grill maker. His grills are just terrific. And, you know, it's funny talking about law enforcement and the criminal justice system. I had a dream yesterday and I had forgotten about it until just now. I had a dream yesterday afternoon before I woke up, obviously. And I dreamt that I was a corrupt FBI agent. And I was being brought to justice and I was on trial along with three or four other people. And I chose to represent myself. I was representing myself pro se, which I've always wanted to do. I've always thought that that would be a lot of fun, although they don't recommend it. Right. But I've had, you know, there's I've known some people that have represented themselves with with mixed success anyway. So um, I don't remember all the details of the dream. But I remember a couple things. I remember them thinking that I had a good shot at being acquitted. And I remember thinking in the dream that I was guilty, but for some reason I had some justification why I was not really guilty of being a corrupt FBI agent. And what annoyed me is that even though it was my trial, I was not able to sit at the defense table. I had to sit in the gallery with all the other spectators at my own trial. 
And I kept, you know, there were no chairs left at the defense table. I guess there were co-defendants and all their lawyers. And I would go up to the defense table and everyone kept saying, oh, no, 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 you got to sit back there. I said, wait a minute, this is my trial. It doesn't matter. There are no seats left. So I'm not sure what it means. If you're a dream analyst, feel free to email me and offer your two cents on that. Uh, Frank.Morano at uh, WABCRadio.com. I'll tell you what's disturbing. The fact that eggs are the new caviar. Have you seen the price of eggs? Now, I got to tell you, I don't know what anything costs at all. Um, You could tell me a a carton of milk costs $5 or $20, and I would have no idea if that is accurate or not, right? I know nothing about what anything costs except eggs. Eggs are absolutely my favorite food. And I love eggs. I really look forward to Saturday being able to have breakfast with my wife. That's the one day we're able to have breakfast. And egg prices are out of control. They're out of control. They are now, in December, they hit a record high. They dipped a little bit this month of $5.46 for a dozen eggs. So it really is like scrambled eggs has become the new caviar. And... I was talking to my wife yesterday because she was listening to uh, an, another interview that J.B. Smoove had done because she's a fan of J.B. Smoove. And he endorses this product, Just Egg, which is sort of a vegan egg replacement. I said, well, we could just get that, right? And she said, no, that's actually more expensive than the eggs. So if anybody has an idea for a cost-effective egg replacement, please email me on that as well. Marlena Shivo is here. You know what that means. Anything can happen. And it usually does. In the meantime, make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. Well, uh, I am nothing if not honest with you most of the time. Occasionally I fib. Occasionally I exaggerate. Occasionally I just outright lie for comedic effect or for satirical purposes. But what I'm about to tell you is true. In my life, you may not believe this, but I have never been skiing. And I really feel like um, I, I really feel like I, I haven't necessarily missed out on a lot. But then I was talking to William Shatner earlier in the week. We were talking about aging, and now that he's uh, ninety in his nineties, he was lamenting the fact that he has never been skiing. Well, no, excuse me. Um, he was lamenting the fact that he can no longer ski, which is something that he really used to enjoy. And I was thinking to myself, well, do I really want to get to a point when I'm in my nineties, hopefully, where I've never been skiing? Right. Uh, Should I be skiing before it's too late? So I've been talking about skiing with a lot of people. Obi Murray, 
a frequent visitor to the Vermont area. My friend Kyle O'Brien, a uh, big, uh, big skier, big ski person. Uh, my friend Brian Silverstein, always another one, well, going up to Vermont. And lo and behold, uh, one of our favorite guests, producer, digital content creator, and humorist, Marlena Shivo, will be skiing in a matter of days. And I'm going to see how she describes the whole skiing situation and if it's appealing enough to make me want to do it. Hello, Marlena. Hello, Frank. I heard you complaining about eggs right. or egg prices. Very and upset you, about you, this. you actually missed an opportunity for a great pun. What was it? It's an egonomic crisis. <laughs> that, is, that is a very Morano-esque pun. That is good. It is... <laughs> <laughs> are, I love how you like just that. gave yourself credit for the pun that I, I gave you. No, but it's like, you know how there are certain things that Yogi Berra didn't say, but uh, other people have said it, but it sounds like a Yogiism? That sounds like a Moranoism. That's exactly the kind of thing that I would be saying then I will never on a say regular basis. Exactly. There you go. But now uh, now that I it's been planted in my brain, you've done some live writing for me in real life. <laughs> um, so uh, the lot that I want to go over with you, it's the first time I've seen you in 2023 yes too late to say happy new year or no well according to larry david it is but Mm. we haven't seen each other so i guess we could say happy new year except we already did via text well i know but it's the first time in actual yeah new year um you wanted to ask me about skiing this is how i feel about um uh, skiing and a few other sports and then i'll give you the wisdom of bill maher when it comes to these things so I believe in life sports because you're never going to, you know, if you're a football player or a soccer player or all, any of these things, um, it's not going to go on and on unless you you decide to go pro and, and how many people get to do that, none, right? None. So life sports are, you know, uh, tennis, golf, um, skiing, because uh, you can do this well into your 60s and so on. Like bocce is a lifetime activity. Activity, yes. But soccer, maybe not. No, I mean you're not going to be playing soccer. I mean, maybe right, but not in your seventies. Most 70s. people will not be doing pickup soccer games in their seventies, right? right. Um, however, if you never had the inclination to ski, um, I would say maybe you just are not interested in skiing. So I remember Bill Maher talking about bucket lists and how he wasn't a fan of them because he didn't care that he had never been to China and he never cared that he had never been skiing. <laughs> And he's like, I don't need to put that in my bucket list just because I haven't done it. Right. So I really think it comes down to, do you want to try to ski? Well, it's so interesting. I think the answer is probably not, right? But then I made, oh, I've been doing a lot of research about how to stave off uh, dementia and things of that nature and how to, you know, how to stay sharp and how to stay motivated. And almost everything that I read says that you should be trying new things and getting out of your comfort zone. So I do get concerned that there are all these activities. So I actually made a list of things that I've never done. They're not things, to Bill Maher's point, that I've ever had much of a desire to do. But I made a list of all these things that I've never done, and I thought maybe I should be trying to do these things, and maybe that'll help me stave off dementia. So I don't really – you know, I picture skiing being a lot of um, a lot of work – for not necessarily that much of a payoff. You've got to put on all these clothes. It's still probably cold. You've got to go on the ski lift. Um, I'm more of a, I think, hanging out with a hot cocoa at the ski lodge kind of a person rather than going out and bundling up. call those up. ski bunnies. Ski bunnies. So. That's a gender neutral term? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it is now. Okay, wonderful. Um, it is 2023 after all. So 
I would say if you're not an adrenaline junkie, which most people would describe me as, then perhaps skiing isn't even something that you should be bothered with, unless you just want to see if you can do it. Yeah. I feel like I should do it at least once. Where are you on roller coasters? Love them. Me too. So so maybe if I have a fondness for roller coasters, maybe I do have, uh, I don't know, a little bit of a predilection towards adrenaline. But roller coasters don't take a skill set. You have to sit down and strap yourself in. Right. You, if, it, Which are, I can handle. Would, uh, would you consider yourself an athletic person? I think so, actually, yeah. I mean, I'm not in the best shape now, but yeah, I hold my do own. Do other people think so? I, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I think it would depend on the nature of the athletic endeavor. I would venture to say I'm a pretty decent softball I bet player. I knew you were going to say softball. True. That's why you organize softball That's games. That's right. right. Well, uh, you know, I could play, uh, you know, handball. I could hold my own at a ping pong game now and again. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning pickleball. I'm practicing pickleball a little bit. I don't mm. know. I can hold my own. Um, but, uh, but we'll see. You know, I'm eager to hear how your skiing trip goes. You're going up to Vermont, I ski right? all the time. Well, we, do, I, um, we talk about me skiing every year. All right, well, yes, I am going up yeah. to Vermont. And um, I love it. And I'll probably come back and be like, it was great. The uh, maple syrup from Vermont, is it, everything, is it everything that it's cracked up to be? Or is that one of those things that falls in the category of it's a lot more hype than actual... Delivery. I can't say that I've done any real taste tests, and I can't, so I can't answer the question. Plus, I am not a huge fan of maple syrup mm. and sugary things in general. So you're going to have to ask somebody else. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I will. Uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, Vermont maple syrup. Is it all it's cracked up to be, or is it a lot of hype? All right, a lot I want to get to with you. It's good to see you. First time I have seen you in uh, in the new year. I like um, the list of words that you sent me that have been banished (laughs) for the year 2023. Before we get into what these words are, why are most of these words being banished? They're they're words or um, phrases, but um, because they're overused, uh, they're useless, um, they're cliche, they're, quote, nonsensical, um, and they are, um, I guess, overall just annoying because they're said too much, right? I am definitely someone who doesn't like redundancy, and I do not like typo- like cliches, you know, at uh, all. Give me an example of uh, one that you really dislike. All of them. Any Anybody Any. Who, who says, like... Um, at the end of the day? or No, that, no that's more of a phrase. But give okay. me, like, a cliche. Um Oh, I wish I had one at the tip of my tongue. But I will change one word just to not have it be the exact thing that everybody else says. Whatever that thing would be, we will think of it before the end of the hour. Uh, There are, um, you know, there's all these words or phrases that, uh, and usually I do this uh, segment on the radio once a year. I call them linguistic linguini, words or phrases that they just make you cringe or wince. And I I always like to ask people, what word or phrase drives you crazy? Uh, My friend uh, Jay Diamond, for instance, he cannot stand the phrase any way, shape, matter, or form. He oh. hates that. Right? Okay. Uh, that doesn't bother me. But um, I, I, I know a lot of people are really bothered by I could care less. Oh, yeah. I can't stand that because it's, they, they don't say it correctly. Yeah. It's more of a grammar issue than it is. Again, the I could care less has its defenders. And a couple of the people here recently said I could care less. And uh, honestly, I heard it earlier in the week. It's been bothering me for a few days. I'm just thinking I can't believe I work with all these I could care less people. <laughs> um, but, um, but uh, you know, that, that's a phrase that really gets a lot of people. But go. that's more of like... Like a misuse of uh, the phrase. I mean, it's not correct. It's not grammatically correct. It's I couldn't care less. 
Well, the defenders of I could care less say it's sarcasm. They say it's like saying, oh, I could give a blank, right? Mm-hmm. It's their way of uh, – of, and it's now become so popular that the number of people that say I could care less is just about equal to the people that say I couldn't care less. It may even uh, supersede it. I say neither these days. I usually say things like um, giving a blank is not one of my talents. Okay. <laughs> okay, fair enough. One of the things that I said this week that really irked a lot of people was my pronunciation of the word coupon. Um, apparently, the proper pronunciation is coupon. I like coupon. I feel like it uh, rolls off the tongue a little bit. Better. No, it's really the way you uh, pronounce your W's, but I don't know if you're doing it on purpose. Is that a purposeful thing? When you say white and like... Yes, absolutely. Everything I do is purposeful. <laughs> Everything. Is it to annoy people? No. it's to, I, I mean, if people are annoyed, so be it. It's to bring me greater pleasure. I don't know. It's, uh, I, like to, I like to say a little whole wheat. I like to emphasize, get, get, some, get some out of, out of the, my WHs. So. Okay. Because right. you're full of hot air. That's true. Um, banished words. What are they? Although I've never really heard anybody say this, so I don't know why this is banished, but but inflection point. Oh, inflection point. I think a I've lot of people – no, no, but I'm saying I don't think it's overused. No, no, definitely not. They're banishing that for overuse? Yes. No. That's uh, – I don't agree. Um, by the way, who's doing the banishing? Do oh, it's, um, it's this university. And they um, – they actually took submissions, and then some committee decided on these. They keep saying there's ten of them, but I've gone through it three times, and there's only nine. So, okay. which right. is Thanks. interesting in and of itself. In and of itself, that's there's when one. you don't like. <laughs> no, it's just one of those things. I probably should stop saying. Um, gaslighting. Ugh, that is overused. Yeah, I think, and I'll be honest, I. And people have tried to explain this to me. I've looked it up. I've seen the film Gaslight with Angela Lansbury. I don't even understand what gaslighting is. Oh, I do. Yeah. And yeah. You don't at all about I, the gaslights? No, I know it's you make somebody think that they're crazy, basically. Yes. That's the premise of the yes. film. Yes, yes. Eh, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that. Uh, that uh, no, nah, uh, I don't like the word. Don't like it. But it, but you know, there's there's a real psychology behind it. Yeah. So, um, have you ever been gas lit lit by someone? Um. Yes, but it's not in the way that a lot of people. A lot of people use it in like relationships, like romantic or uh-huh. whatever relationships. But like, I feel like I've probably done that actually. Yeah, that I, <laughs> now that I think of that, okay. Oh, I'm sure I have too. I mean, I'm sure I'm guilty of it. But I've definitely have made like new friendships in my adult life where um, I start to wonder why this certain person is off. Like I I always feel like the conversation is difficult or um, the way they handle something, the way they speak makes no sense. And I'm like, I don't get it. And if I say I don't get it that many times after we've interacted a bunch of times, then I'm like, I'm being gaslit by this person a hundred percent because it's, it's really their deficit and, and what they're doing in order to benefit themselves. Anyway, whatever. It's so boring. So ga- anyway. I'm glad Gaslight is, is, being, is going away. Okay. Go- Gaslight is going away. And who's any- enforcing these, by the way? Like, no if, if, one. No. This is one of those articles that is a clickbait. And, okay. Fair enough. And, but, but, but I always like to see because I'm a words person mm-hmm. and, I, and I am a stickler for grammar. And I didn't realize that. That people like me are called grammarians. Did yeah, you know that? I did. Um, and my friend Curtis Lewa has a, a group, the Grammarian Angels. They go all <laughs> over town correcting people's syntax. It's really, it's really quite surreal. They walk around with these giant red markers correcting the things that people are writing.
It's really surreal. But yes, I did know that. Is that a real? Is that a real no, thing? You I, just, said, I, just I was, that, I was but... about to say because I think I could correct Curtis Lewa every time. Every time he opens his mouth. Okay. Uh, wow. Quiet quitting. I also don't feel like that's an overused phrase. But uh, I do. I do. And... It's overly written about. Maybe. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I, I I could understand that. Okay. Maybe it's over. I think that's. I didn't even. I'd never even heard the term quiet quitting more than a year ago. I feel like I hear it or encounter it. Once a day minimum now. Because everybody's quiet quitting your yes. um, subscriber list. Yeah, well, the, yes, that, among other things, yeah. You know, and I meant to say um, I wanted to um, – well, I wanted to denounce YouTube, but I could do that later. Thank I you. wanted to uh, – but I wanted to thank you for telling me about the people who are unsubscribing to your mailing list because you just reminded me of um, – that I have to unsubscribe myself. <laughs> I completely forgot. I've been so busy. Um, so the word or the phrase moving forward. What's wrong with moving forward? I don't think I don't that's know. overused. I, I, okay. So gaslight, I'm with them. I'm with them on quiet quitting. Inflection point, I'm not with them. And moving forward, I, I, I'm very, I'm progressive. I like moving forward. Okay. So moving forward, yes. the next word is Amazing. Amazing. That is overused, right? Mm-hmm. And it's overused not as an adjective, but as a one-word sentence or response to things, <laughs> right? I mean, right. I am with these guys, these university folks on that one. Amazing. Although you kind of do that, except you don't use the word amazing. You'll say incredible or something along those lines. Yeah, well, as an adjective or as a response to something? As a response to something. Uh, well, you know what it is? I'm a I'm a busy person, and you know I want to I don't want to be rude and not respond to an SMS text message or something, but I do want to uh, you know just a- acknowledge it and kind of move on. I'm not sure some some phrases don't require a lengthy response, which is why amazing exists to begin Fair with. Enough. Okay, the next one is very similar. Absolutely, very similar is is absolutely overused. No <laughs> doubt about it. And uh, the next one is the sentence. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I don't find that to be overused. Do you? I feel like it is overused by people who are inarticulate or, uh-huh. or don't or don't feel like they are articulating their point. Does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I feel like I hear that a lot from Southern folks. Does that make sense? And And I find the way that a lot of Southern folks use it it, I find it actually kind of endearing and kind of their way of uh, demonstrating humility uh, as if they're trying not to be a know-it-all and still convey information and ask if there's anything that needs to be clarified. I I, uh, I don't agree with these guys on does that I know, um, irregardless, but I feel like that's always banned because it's not a real yeah, word. I, well, I, irregardless is a very controversial word, and I like irregardless, but even I, who throw all these linguistic rules by the wayside – I've even had to stop using irregardless because it's such a red flag with people. People get so worked up about it. But my contention is irregardless is a word. It's a portmanteau of the words irrespective and regardless because there are all sorts of times when irrespective just won't do and regardless just won't do. And that's why irregardless exists, the perfect blending of irrespective and regardless. Okay. Well, I disagree. I hate that word. Um, so, And you're in the majority. Most people do. Okay. And the last one, I think you and I will 
both agree on, I think. The phrase, it is what it is. Yeah, I I caught myself saying that recently and I was I, I, I was filled with self-loathing for the, the whole day. <laughs> it is, you know, I, I, um, I don't like to hear it. I don't like to say it. But sometimes when you need to react to something that somebody's saying right. and kind of convey the opinion that, all right, we're moving on. Right. It's there. It's, it's there and you, you got to use it. Right. Well, you know? yeah, you can use something else. What would you use as a, a replacement for it is what it is? Um, it's what it has to be. Maybe it's going to eh. be what it's going to be. Uh, I, I, don't, I like it is what it is if those are my choices. Well, let's move on then. Okay. Let's move forward. All right. Um, There are – you have uh, two daughters with very unique names. I do. There are no um, Michelle's and Kelly's in your house, right? No. Um, What are are your daughters' names? Do you you care if we – No, it's fine. Rebel and Harley. Okay. Uh, Very unique, very spirited. Right. So this next story was this couple that are apparently self-described globetrotters. I, I, they said that they encountered trolls, I'm assuming, on social media about the, the names that they picked for their kids. Stop looking at your phone. Well, you know what I'm doing? I'm trying to – I searched the term it is what it is uh-huh. to see how often I've, I've used it. So I used it Wednesday in a conversation with my mom. I used it on July 28th in a conversation with Dominic Carter. And I used it on August 16th of 2021 with you. Mm. Yeah, I said whatever. It is what it is. Okay. So they, well, um, I guess I do use it. You do use it, and it's probably um, the people who listen to this program um, who made this list, <laughs> I guess, uh, irregardless of <laughs> <laughs> your uh, linguistic um, parameters. Anyway, listen. So this couple... Named their two kids Caruso after Robinson Caruso and Sawyer. Oh, um, Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer. So, <clears throat> and I guess they got all this criticism, which made me laugh because both of those names don't even sound that outlandish no, to me. And Sawyer absolutely. is actually a really cute name. This and, is out of the UK? <clears throat> yes. And so, um, and they, they found themselves defending their names. It's kind of a nothing burger altogether, but it just made me laugh because of my kids' names and... And I remember um, posting after I was we were we did a show and one of the listeners um, said something to the effect of, oh, I don't even have it with me. But he said his name was Heisen. And he said, uh, forget whatever we were talking about, who who names their kid rebel? What kind of person names their kid rebel? And I remember just being like, yeah, because Heisen is sweeping the nation. What kind of person says? says that <laughs> only in the world of social media do f- people feel so free to pass judgment on a total stranger's name for their child oh i know um so i just that story kind of yeah i'd like to know to what me. heisen's child is named what's that i'd like to know what heisen's child is is named i, if I have Rebels a feeling heisen doesn't have children mm. really going out on a limb there um so uh, the these kids are named Sawyer and Caruso, which I like, and I agree with you. I don't think that they're outlandish. It's not like uh, Elon Musk's child naming them after a symbol or something. What? I don't know. He did, one of Elon Musk's children has a, a weird name, right? I think it's a symbol or something. <laughs> it's the baby formerly known as. It, it, it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah, the baby formerly <laughs> the for, known as. The, the baby currently known as <laughs> right. Elon Musk's child. Right. I'll look it up. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but so um, how are people reacting to this to this uniquely named couple of kids out there? Um, they were critical of them and thought that they were ridiculous names, basically. And the, par- and the parents felt the need to defend their choices, um, which I found even more ridiculous than the critics. Why would you have to defend anything no, you it, do in this I, I completely agree. Well, I We feel go like... back to giving up is not one of my talents. Okay, that is what Elon Musk's most recent child is named. It's it's. Oh. I can't even... <clears throat> I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's spelled... X A E dash twelve Musk. That's so. That is. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that is. He is a sick. It is is an unfortunate name for that child. (laughs) Well, no, but Elon Musk is. I mean, he's an odd bird. I mean, he like. I feel like he thinks he lives in the Matrix. Well, we might be. You you don't go for that. That we could be living in a computer simulation. You don't. You don't buy that. Really. Yeah, I could see that. If I cut you, you will bleed. Right. And you will feel pain. What Elon Musk has said, and not just Elon Musk, but others, is that um, in relatively short order, we will be making video games or computer simulations that are indistinguishable from reality, right? So there's a chance that we're living in base reality, but it's a much greater chance that this is all a computer simulation designed by someone many, many years from now, and that we're all self-aware. We're, we're all, we're some sort of artificial intelligence. There's, there's, a, there's a matrix, there's a documentary out about this right now, actually. I think it's called uh, What's in the Matrix or something. But we, I've spent a lot of time looking at this, and there's actually a, a scientist that's crowdfunding an experiment to determine if this is a computer simulation or not. But there was a really interesting op-ed in the New York Times about five years ago saying we shouldn't try to find out because the results are either going to be very anticlimactic and very boring or cataclysmic. Because if we do find out that this is a computer simulation, then whoever is running the computer simulation, we've foiled their plans and they just might pull the plug. So maybe we better not go this way. Oh, route. that is so fictional. I mean, right, and then maybe. what happens if that the people, the person or the who, whoever's running the the computer program dies they just have like all of these people lined well, I, up to I, I, then take Malena, over you're asking me questions i don't know the answer to but look i think elon musk makes a very a very valid argument on the likelihood that that we're living in a in a computer simulation but uh, you know yeah d- but you're like a but you mentioned like shatner 17 times tonight you it's love true. star trek like I you're do. like a you this would be something that interests you and like what what it what it oh wet your palate like to me it sounds like it's, it sounds super hokey it might be you might be right okay so i'm willing to acknowledge the possibility that we're living in base reality and that it's not a computer simulation you know what is a computer simulation what's that that artwork that you do what is that called yeah well it, the it's ai artwork right and it's nightlife cafe you're not a fan of that I mean, it just doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's quick. It's quick. You can bang these pieces of artwork out uh, quickly. 800-848-9222. Let me know if you think we're living in a computer simulation or not. Marlena Shivo is here. Charles is in Queens. He wants to weigh in on the word situation. Hi, good morning. Uh, first, I wanted to say that I sincerely believe that the, the university people that made up that list, they are gaslighting us. 
And all kidding aside, it doesn't make sense what they came, what they came up with. There's no sense. It's like a, they're playing a trick on us. The whole list. I don't know. Well, that sense. could be what this whole simulation is geared to. Uh, Charles, <laughs> is there any specific word that you have a problem with their inclusion on the list? What's wrong with moving forward? Inflection point? I, I almost never heard anybody use it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's in? what that's I think you're right on on both points. I don't see anything wrong with moving forward. And uh, I definitely don't see anything wrong with uh, inflection point in terms of overuse. So uh, I'm with uh, I'm with Charles on that one. Uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, Leo is on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. I have advice for the for the skiing for you. Frank, I was in the youth in the junior national ski team of, of Czechoslovakia, and for years I was an instructor of skiing. Uh, skiing is, Frank, similar like another individual sports where you need some device and, and manage to control it, like a surfboard, like a skateboard. You're never going to have satisfaction when you try it once or twice. You need period of time where you're getting better and better, and you need definitely you need somebody. If if you would go for ten days vacation and have instructor who would in intention intention uh, intensively work with you for ten days, you would on the end have some progress where you would kind of have satisfaction from right. sitting okay. down. All if right. you try once or twice, absolutely no chance that you would have any success or anything that would be positive, kind of exciting about All it. All right. Well, thank you, Leo. I, I'm all of a sudden, after talking with you and with Marlena, less inclined to uh, to pursue this. Uh, Marlena, just to put a button on the Elon Musk simulation point, Elon Musk got this question about five years ago. And listen to the question and listen to his response, because I think he makes a very compelling point here. And I mean, like the, the, the strongest argument for, the, for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. Um, that that 40, called 40, 40 years ago, we had Pong, like two rectangles and a dot. That right. was what games were. Um, now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. Mm-hmm. And soon we'll have virtu- you know, virtual reality, we'll have augmented reality. Um, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, um, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Just in- indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even if that rate of advancement drops by a thousand from what it is right now, um, then you just say, okay, well, well let's imagine it's a 10,000 years in the future, uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. Um, so, um, so, so given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be, you know, billions of such, uh, you know, computers or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. So Tell me what's wrong with that argument. Is the answer yes? <laughs> the argument is probably... I mean, I just like, is there, is there a flaw in that argument? I mean, someone... But someone I'm not that, sure what but, the error... In, all right, no, no, the argument makes sense. So the assumption then is that somebody beat us to it, and this is a game. No, no, there's a one in billions chance that this is base reality. Oh, Okay. 
What do you think? Well, I think it's one in billions. Okay. I'm I'm persuaded. There's a one in billions chance that we're living in base reality. Okay, you're persu- persuaded, and that whole clip was like audio ambient to me. <laughs> oh my god! No, I, I mean, uh, but but I, I think he makes perfect sense, right? I mean, I think he, the logic is very sound. Can we move on? Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, computer simulation. Let me know what you think. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. But uh, all right. Well, I, I lot... prefer like Space Invaders. Remember that? Yeah. But again, that's how quickly things are uh, are advancing. All right. Ed is on Staten Island. Ed, uh, you have some closure on the uh, maple syrup front. Yeah. Yeah. In, in order to enjoy, you need to uh, really go to Vermont. So what I've done for you is uh, planned a very uh, peaceful and relaxing weekend. You should stay at the Man- uh, the Equinox Hotel in Manchester. They have a great restaurant. And they have a spa services. Your wife will love it. There's shopping ne- nearby. And uh, you can go to Bromley Mountain, which is not too crowded, and they have a great ski school. And close by is Hildeen, which is the summer home of... Uh, um, the Lincoln family, and so you have his, his historic uh, events. I like it. You, have... I mean, you know, it sounds good. I've always wanted to visit Vermont. Uh, they have a lot of interesting things going for them, and uh, they, uh, you know, they used to be part of New York State before they succeeded. So I'd love to kind of reconnect with uh, with some of them. Do you this think be a lot of fun. Canadians would object to? The maple syrup. Well, I don't know. I don't know. That's why I want to see you know, what the story what the story is. But now I'm looking for replacement breakfast foods. I'm sure some of them are likely to include syrup. So we'll see. All right. Um, I want to follow up on uh, some other child rearing issues, especially now that I'm the father of a, a toddler and you know what it's like to parent two toddlers and um, a bunch of other things. But first, I want to see if we can't give away a thousand dollars. If you are the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, we're going to give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Now, most of these questions uh, were computer generated, meaning they were generated by the AI chatbot. A couple of them I had already in place, but most of them are from the AI chatbot. Seventh caller now, 800-848-9222, computer intelligence or not. If you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, we'll give you $1,000. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Marlena Shivo is in studio. A bunch of other interesting things to talk about, including a fascinating study that shows that uh, very shocking study that women may actually do more work than than men. I, I am floored that this is the case, but we'll no, explore you're not. it. 
It's the least surprising thing I've seen since uh, Hank Johnson said something stupid. But first, we're (laughs) going to try and give away $1,000. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. All right, Marlene is going to play along in studio to see how well she does. Uh, But our actual contestant that can potentially win the money here is Rick in Tom's River. Hello, Rick. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, Rick. I uh, I have a sister-in-law that I believe lives in Tom's River, although she might I'm have... In City. I'm in Holiday City at Berkeley. Retirement village. Beg your pardon? I'm in the retirement area. Holiday oh, okay. City at Berkeley. All right, great. Um, Rick, you familiar with the game? You've heard it before? Yes, I have. Okay, you ready to get started? Yes. All right. How many hours are in a typical day? 24. What is the sum of five plus seven? Twelve. What British prince did an interview with 60 Minutes last this week? Uh, Harry. Who wrote the novel The Catcher in the Rye? Uh, I really don't know. Last name starts with S. Does that help you at all? Uh, Spielberg? I don't know. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Rick. Uh, well, with 38 seconds on the clock, I'm going to put you on hold, um, Rick, and uh, we're going to give you a consolation prize. Take his information if you would, Kenneth. We'll send Rick some nice piece, nice swag to showcase all over the retirement community. Um, how are you doing on your answers? I'm doing just fine. Well, can we see? If no, you're... no, because I can't even remember who wrote that. I know oh, who wrote okay, that. I remember. All right. Well, it's Rick. J.D. Salinger. Oh, wrote. Salinger, right. So you, got, you lost on the same question Rick did. I did, but I know that. I needed a minute. I saw, well, I'm really, the, I'm really, the, 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 the pressure game. of trivia is really, it's really hard. But you're not going to give me the rest of them, right? Because you no, don't want to. I want to save them for, for Monday. I'll give it to them to you privately. But, um, give but, it to me in the break. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's fair. But uh, I don't, I don't think that, you think that was too hard for a question for? No, not at all. Okay, good. I just all had right. a blank. All right. Um, speaking, uh, Marlena Shiva was here. Marlena has been a veteran media producer, a uh, humorist, and uh, somebody that never hesitates been, to, to share. I am. Well, I mean, producer for the for the for the uninitiated. Right. Uh, But, um, you know, one of the stories that you told on the air has got to be over a year ago that I have repeated so many times in real life and people are not aware of is you taking your daughter to the hospital when she you know, she got an injury. Oh, That's still going on. Uh, Well, that's what I was just going to ask. And they asked you if you want what she had a head injury, right? Yeah. And uh, they asked you if they wanted if you wanted a plastic surgeon for her. They didn't say, you know, this is not covered. They didn't say this is the cost. They just asked you, do you want a plastic surgeon? And you said yes. I said sure. And then what is the difference in price between that plastic um, surgeon? I guess if she had gotten the stitches, which were like four or five stitches in her forehead, um, by the the nurse there. And I know this just because my friend's son then got the same injury and, and they, they did it in the ER. I think they just paid their copay and... I think the whole thing is like four, four or five hundred dollars or something like that. I mean, the insurance pays that part and whatever you're going to pay, whatever, fine. So I did pay three hundred dollars in the ER, right? When I was there, right. fine. And then my insurance paid four hundred and I'll say eighty plus dollars. Right. So this hospital did fine. 
Yes. Yeah, so that was it. And so like that should have been the cause. But, but the plastic surgeon that well, they played the plastic plastic surgeon rather the four hundred and eighty some dollars. And um, and I got the balance bill of twenty two thousand dollars for four stitches in the head, which. Wait, wait. I just want you to repeat that. Twenty twenty two. So the original bill was above that. So anyway, I'm. I look at this bill and, and, you know, it's not really itemized. It just it just says like uh, it says like um, complicated, like you know, wound repair or something and whatever. I knew it was insane because so it's been this ongoing thing where they keep trying to bill my insurance and my insurance keeps um, denying the claim. And then they've had me involved on several levels like calling and and calling again and appealing and then re- and now they've written a letter this is the most recent thing they've written a letter on i my behalf our behalf um at least the insurance company is is sticking with you on this right um well i'm well i was i was just trying to get this paid so i was just kind of going along with the the the, the plastic surgeon oh, it's the, the plastic doctor. surgeon's gotcha. office um i you know i kept i kept um I kept going along with what they wanted. They have this like this third party ar- arbitration group that they work with that that deals with these bills. And they, I've been working with them, and they're like, "Okay, we need you to call your insurance company and say this, and we need you to call right. your and say that." Anyway, they the the plastic surgeons office. Oh, we're going to try this. They wrote a letter on our behalf saying you need to revisit this and blah 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 because I'm being back billed for twenty two thousand right. dollars. But I have said I have said all along. There's something wrong with the plastic surgeon for even billing that. And I questioned it at the beginning saying, well, what are the charges for? I don't understand. And the woman simply said, well, this is what we can charge for what was done, which is very vague. And I'm like, "Okay, well, you're trying to get one over on everybody. Exactly. And it just turns out that um, it's still going on. um, And a a friend of Eric's. you know, Eric's your husband. Eric's my yes, my, yes, and uh, his friend is a uh, plastic. Oh, it's actually like a brain surgeon, but um, he said it's fraud. It's actually fraudulent on the plastic surgeon's part, and um, the next thing is to um, now turn against them. It's, I see. Yeah, you got to let us know how this turns out. But the lesson is, if you bring a child to the emergency room with a, a an injury and they offer you a plastic surgeon, ask Actually, how much it's going to cost. Well, not so much that, but um, you have to you have to remember, like it, it, they this should not be the case. This guy is obviously trying to do something like. Not great. Otherwise, the insurance would have negotiated right. with exactly. Them. So, because when you go to an emergency room, the idea is that you're getting emergent care and that you don't have a choice of who provides that care because it's an emergency. Mm. You're not going in for elective surgery, and that and under those circumstances, your insurance company should cover that. Would cover that. Yeah, I understand. I mean, uh, my dad was in the insurance business for many years. He still uh, it has all these stories about doctors and hospitals overbilling obscene amounts. Yeah. And uh, I, that's but one of the is, more extreme this is, examples. This is very extreme. Like, I no can doubt. see if the guy was overbilling. He's like, oh, this is going to be $5,000. You're yeah. like, that's a lot of money for right. stitches or whatever. $22,000. $22, what, a nine year old or a 10 year old? You're actually not good at being whatever uh, this con man that right. you're trying it's, to be. It's ridiculous. It's like, ridiculous. are you really behind on your malpractice insurance? <laughs> it's true. And you need more all money. Right. Okay. Uh, a couple items I want to go over with you before we run out of time. Speaking of children, the um, the Mirror, which is a UK publication, had a pu- had an article about the most pampered toddlers in 
the UK, essentially. What are they doing in the UK with the more luxurious well, what's, children? What's interesting is that this particular article was about a woman who um, has a toddler who she has given a solid gold binky to, which mm. is, I mean, in their terms, it's a thousand pounds. So, like, we'll just say dollars at this point. Um, but, yeah. So... Then she also, um, ba- I don't get this, but bathes her child in milk and honey. Wow. Which, I, you know, hey, I don't, I don't even think, feel it that sanitary. No, I wouldn't want to do that. But, um, but it's funny because at first you're like, oh, this woman's insane. But if you continue to read, you, you're like, wow. She said that ever since she's had her kid, a kid that she didn't even know she wanted, um, she has taken like she will buy nothing for herself and she gives everything to this child now it's an extreme case (laughs) but it's kind of nice to hear that she has like completely forgotten about herself and her own i don't think that's nice at all i think this is very no it's extravagant and there's meant there's something mentally wrong with it but the fact that she's saying she gives whatever whatever um Things that she would have given to herself, whatever these designer things are that she desires, which is weird to begin with. Now she just lavish. It's for her child only because she can't afford to do it for him and her. So she only does it for him. So on one hand, you're like, well, that's nice because she feels like right, this she's is, sacrificing, even though he has no idea that he has a solid gold binky in right, his mouth. Lo- it's, would it's a mental. child want a solid gold pacifier? I can't imagine that's very comfortable to chew on or to suck. I don't know. Well, maybe we should give them a call and we can interview the I, child I think, uh, and find will. out we his will. comfort. Um, well, well, I'm not sure if the child's verbal, but we'll look into that. So, well, he's three, so maybe. Interesting know. study showing, shockingly, that women do more. Do yes. more than whom and how was this measured as far as we well, know? Well, there was a study done with heterosexual couples who are working from home more and more and like in dual income households that the woman still takes on the load even though like – it's not the traditional men go out to work and the woman is home situation and then um, or both people going out to an office five days a week. So now both of both husbands and wives these days are sort of half home Working, and half right. not home. And yet the, the stuff at home falls on the woman, um, even though the man is physically in the home to also jump in. And I say it doesn't surprise me. This is not really breaking news and it's all and i've said this all along it's because women are multitaskers and they can do a lot of things at one time but it is very um distressing to women no i understand that and you know it i have to say in our house this has got to be the cause of 70 to 75 percent of the arguments that my wife and i have and i feel like i am i do try to pitch in a, a great deal but, uh, you know, I'll, you know, be in the middle of working or reading or, you know, playing with Carmine and I'll just hear my wife sighing. And I know this is meant to be a an audible sigh that's loud <laughs> enough for us to hear so that I take notice that she's doing a chore that I am not doing. And um, I can tell this does weigh on her a great deal. So, uh, But it's not just that. It's not even so much people think about chores. They think about dishes and they think about cleaning up or, or laundry, but it's more than that. Women are still the ones that are making the doctor's appointments, mm. taking them to the yeah, doctor's absolutely. appointments. And when, when Carmen gets older and he has activities and everything else, it's it's so much of the carpooling, even though both people are working. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy. And I, I actually um, 
have been asked by my, you know, where I'm working now, how I am so available every time I get a call or a text and get things done while I have all these other things going on. And uh, it makes me laugh. I'm like, because this is how we're programmed. I have to, I want, I'm not going to ignore work and I'm not going to, um, let everything in my house fall by the wayside. So it is what it is. Oh my God, I just said it is what you it did. is. You did. I noticed. I was I was just going to nail you on that. Um, so what do we do with this information? Or do we just recognize this is the, the way that nature has designed each of the genders? One is better at multitasking well, I think than the, the other. I think the, 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 the pharmaceutical world is working on this oh, because geez. they keep pushing hormones on to men, uh, you know, uh, puberty blockers right. and everything else. So, so perhaps they're just going to change everybody into. There you go. That's <laughs> the key. Get a prescription for <laughs> being able to make doctor's appointments. Uh, all right. Um, before we run out of time, very quickly, want to get your take on this. And this is something I feel like pops up in the news pretty regularly. A mom was actually scolded by a teacher oh. for not inviting the entire class to a birthday party. As somebody that's been through this, uh, hosting your own daughter's birthday parties. What is the protocol oh, in terms please. of what you're supposed so to do? So when when they're in when they're young and they're in kindergarten and then first grade, like the protocol apparently where I am is that you invite the entire class, and then as they get older, it's fine to kind of like narrow it down to just like the gender. It, or, or, but I'm thinking to myself all along, wh- why do I have to adhere to these like arbitrary rules? But you did adhere though, and I did, of course, with with my. You don't first, want to be and, a pariah. And here I am doing it again. Actually, my little one's birthday is coming up and there are actually two classes for her grade. And I'm like, OK, we're going to invite your class and then you're going to pick and your cherry pick the ones from the other class. Like there's no point of having like 35 kids running around like these because it get, it's insane. There's it, first of all, it's chaotic. There's a lot of sugar involved. There's a lot of tired kids involved. And then on top of it, it's um, you're gonna feed every all these kids. It's probably expensive. Birthday, every birthday, because it's never it's always at a place, right? Oh. It's always it is always, always a thousand plus. Always. So where does this teacher get off scolding this mom for wanting to get out of this kind of a birthday the birthday industrial complex here? It's I, well, and, and this mom had a real reason too. her. She said her daughter is eight years old and she's an introvert and she wanted to just have like four friends go and do ceramics and get ice cream. I, and that, I think that's perfectly acceptable. And no one should tell anybody how they should conduct their birthday parties. So I just found it so ludicrous that this was even something that um, completely, completely transpired. Agree. Yeah. Uh, all right. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. You can be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno here for the hour with uh, Marlena Shivo, our first radio interaction of the year. So far, I think it's gone well, even though we uh, don't exactly see eye to eye on living in a computer simulation. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Before we get out of here, let me apologize, uh, because apparently uh, Marlena Schiavo, who's in studio with me, I described your children's names as very unique. And a number of listeners have written to me describing how annoying it is. You shouldn't modify the word unique. Something's either unique or it's not. So I'm sorry about that. I apologize to a lot of Rebel linguistic. and Harley. Linguistic linguini. This is where we're at. A lot of linguistics tonight. Um, that's that. I, uh, what are you doing for the weekend? Anything fun? What am I doing? Oh, it's my brother's birthday. Uh, oh, you party. sound thrilled about that. <laughs> You know, <laughs> the older relate. I get, the the less I want to be told where I'm going. I hear that. Uh, I'm sure he had to invite everybody in his workplace for that birthday party. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we get out of here, let us give people an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Artie! Artie? Mike! Hello, Frank. It was 1987. I booked a ski trip to Guam. Conditions were less than ideal. While I was there, the island did in fact flip momentarily, then righted itself. Guam is 210 square miles with a population density of 775 people, just in case you needed to know. Tom! Yes, stay away from mountains, stay away from skiing. It's a good way to break your leg. Tommy, two times. Okay. If I say we're living in the Matrix, I believe the AI program will delete me. So, uh, no, I, I don't think we're living in the Matrix. And also, honey milk bits are, are, are supposedly bits of the, of the uh, Queen uh, Cleopatra. It's supposed to make your, your skin real sh- uh, shiny. I'll give it a shot. And finally, Joe. Hey, it's Joe from Ronkakuma. Joe, your phone's all screwed up. I can't hear you. Hey, uh, just as well, we're out of time. Marlena, thank you. Uh, Maybe we could continue uh, the conversation next week. We'll come up with some other interesting words to ban by then. Frank Moreno, good day.